0: I did not expect this to be the genesis of our conversation.
1: This time the topic is hyponatremia, something we see frequently but may not understand as well as
2: we should.
3: Most of the time we're going to see this in the setting of malignancy, so specifically lung cancer
2: or lymphoma. It is incomprehensible to come in with fatigue and only an hour later be told you're about to die.
4: It's a crime that I can't believe we allowed to happen for so long.
2: You know, sometimes it's working, sometimes it's not. It's kind of how you use it.
5: To be continued.
6: June wind. Light and wind are running over the headed grass as though the hill had melted and now flowed, right? Because of the wind. So you're looking at it, you got a big hill. Welcome to the EM Reviews and Perspectives,
7: June 2022. The weather's beautiful outside and I am so happy to be back with Jan Schoenberger. Jan? It's a great month. we got some great
8: content. You ready? Swami, I'm super excited. And yes, welcome to summer, everyone. We're happy to be here. We're halfway through the year. We're in the sixth month of the year. So, so yeah, I'm super ready. It's a great month. Let's do it.
7: Let's do this. Yeah, let's do it. Let's start with a case. And Jane, you've got a, a really interesting case for us to get into.
9: The case.
8: All right, Swami. So for you today, I have a 33-year-old female. She's coming to the ED with severe abdominal pain as her chief complaint. She's coming in via EMS, and what you get over the radio is this is an undomiciled patient. She has substance abuse issues, and and the paramedics know her pretty well. She's frequently intoxicated with meth. They've brought her in before. This time, however, things are a little different. She is noted to be very pregnant. According to what they know, she's had several pregnancies, They don't know the gestational age. She hasn't had a lot of prenatal care. She told the paramedics she thought she felt some fluid come out a couple days ago. And the paramedics also report over the radio that they think they see some fetal parts coming out. So at this point, the base station have given you this report, Swami. What are you thinking at this point? What do you want to prepare for?
7: Let's be honest. The first thing I'm thinking is I'm going to look at the clock. Am I near the end of my shift? can I go home and sign this one out? But probably not, because it never is that way. It's always, it's coming in the middle of your or right at the beginning. So I'm going to have to address it. And I think a lot of what I'm going to want to know is what resources do I have? Do I have OB in-house? Because if I do, I want them downstairs. Do I have NICU in-house? Because if I do, I want them downstairs. And if not, then let me go over to the PZD. Let me get somebody from there. Let me get a baby warmer set up. Let me get everything ready for a delivery that is going to happen right now. Whether we want it to or not, it is probably going to happen very quickly. So I'm going to prepare for that. And I want a couple of teams, Jan. I think this is one of the things that we make a mistake on. When we have the ability, we need a team to do delivery. We need a team to take care of the baby. We need a kind of a, a tandem unit to make sure that we're resuscitating both patients. So if I've got the bodies, I want to make two teams with a team leader for each, at least two teams. And then let me get a consultant or two on board if necessary.
8: Absolutely. I mean, knowing what your resources are is absolutely key. And what your equipment is, like you mentioned, the baby warmer, do you have a delivery pack? What kind of things do you have? And in some cases, I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking it would just be me. That is all I have is me. And that's going to be the case sometimes. So in this particular case, we called in a code OB, which in our hospital does bring down a lot of resources, which we were happy to see arrive. But before they actually got there, of course, the paramedics kind of roll through the door very quickly after the report was given. And you see this woman coming in and she is screaming, screaming bloody murder. She is writhing in pain. And your plan, you were thinking, oh my God. I mean, I was hoping to kind of do a quick evaluation and hopefully kind of get her upstairs, but looking at her, I'm just not sure that's gonna go so smoothly because she is just screaming in pain. Her vitals, she's got a heart rate of 130. Her blood pressure is reported to be 136 over 100. Her respiratory rate is 18, as recorded on the chart, and she's afebrile. And so you kind of take a quick look at her, and everything looks pretty normal in the sense that her airways, you know, kind of do your primary survey, her airway is fine, her breathing is fine, but you note a big gravid abdomen, and she's a little tender as you touch it. And she's GCS 15, she seems to be with it, but she is screaming and screaming, and the nurse is already looking at you thinking, we got to do something. What kind of pain meds are you going to give her because... She clearly needs something, and she's not going to cooperate without kind of doing something about it. So, Dr. Swami Nathan, what do you want to order?
7: This is really important because we're not going to get that good exam. You know, is the patient having an abruption, right? We have to be really worried about that. It seems like it's a late trimester. Uh, She's got a history of methamphetamine use, which puts her at an increased risk. Is there a uterine rupture? There was a, a report of fluid leakage a couple of days ago, and even though the patient's afebrile, she could have an infectious process going on. So we need to do a lot of evaluation to take care of the patient. And to take care of the baby. And I think providing pain management is clearly going to be important. And we are kind of torn about what to give. I know I can give an opiate, but there's going to be some issues with that because there's some crossing of the placenta and we have to worry about that. I could give, maybe I could give ketamine. I don't know. I I don't actually know how safe ketamine is in pregnancy. I think it's okay if I remember correctly, but I'll tell you, Jan, I don't remember the last time I gave ketamine to a woman who was pregnant. I do have nitrous in my shop, and I know a lot of places don't have that, but that probably would be the first thing I reach for. And back in March, we spoke with Dr. Alexis Lapietra about nitrous, and one of the things she pointed out is that this is safe in third trimester pregnancy. So I might grab the nitrous as my first line, and of course, thinking if this patient does have substance use issues, she might have some tolerance to opiates. So I'm not even sure how much I have to give for her. That might then jeopardize the baby. I don't know. There's a lot of different things going on. But I think nitrous is the first thing that I would reach for. And knowing, of course, that most places don't have that, maybe ketamine, or I'm going to have to go with an opiate.
8: I love the nitrous idea. I think that's a really good one. And you're right. A lot of places don't have it, but that would be a nice thing to do. You know, what's interesting in this scenario is that often when we're talking about what drugs to give someone who's pregnant, we're talking about the teratogenicity. We're talking about all of the you know fetal type of side effects that it might have. But, you know, when you're at this point where the fetus is about to be born, we're not really worried about any of that anymore, you know, in terms of the pregnancy class of drugs. At this point, we're worried about does it cross the placenta and what kind of physiologic effects will it have on the fetus? And that's where the discussion of whether to give opiates or not kind of comes into place because opiates do cross the placenta. And so they carry an increased risk of newborn respiratory depression, which is why they're not necessarily favored by our OB colleagues. This is particularly true for opioids that you're giving IV, for example. This is why they give them via epidural and spinal catheters, because it's pretty common to see changes in the fetal heart rate after you give parental opioids. Remembering, if if you did only have the selection of opioids and you're thinking through the options, what one would you pick and why?
7: Well, I guess I would probably go with something that's shorter acting. And and again, it's going to depend on what you have stocked. But most places have morphine, hydromorphone, and fentanyl. So fentanyl might be what I use just thinking about the short duration, the short half-life, and maybe that's going to be better for the respiratory depression part of it. But again, I don't have a lot of experience with this. And you mentioned, obviously, the ideal would be to have an epidural catheter. But even if your code OB gets an anesthesiologist down there, they're not popping an epidural catheter in this woman when she's writhing around. Like, this. obviously, that's not going to happen but i probably would reach for something like fentanyl maybe if you had remy fentanyl that might be an option as well
8: yeah i think those are good choices and it's interesting some part of you thinks well maybe i want something longer acting because she's going to be in labor for a while so that would be you know a good thing but back to the conversation of how it might affect a baby that's about to be born it's also longer acting in in the child as well so it turns out there are actually aCOG American College of Gynecology of Obstetrics and Gynecology guidelines about pain management during labor not surprisingly they came out in 2017. And in this document, they walk through the various options you have. And we can post this in the show notes. It's a publicly, you know, freely available document. They talk about the different types of neuraxial analgesia, the epidural or spinal catheters, and also the various options you have in terms of opioids. And in their recommendations, they say that it is level A evidence, meaning the highest level evidence that they have. They point out that opiates are associated with side effects that include respiratory depression for both mom and baby. But they are not contraindicated. And they also say in their recommendations, and this is level C evidence, a little bit lower, but they say, in the absence of any medical contraindication, maternal request is a sufficient medical indication for pain relief during labor. So you know, if you're faced with someone screaming in pain, give what you need to give. And in this case, I think that if you didn't have nitrous, which I think is a good first, first opening salvo, I would go with an opiate.
7: I think it makes a lot of sense. And I'm hoping that you gave the fentanyl or the morphine and the patient was able to to kind of have their pain a little bit better managed. And of course, if you give the fentanyl and the pain's a little better managed, now maybe you could get an epidural and maybe that's a possibility. Like, I'm not going to make that call myself, but maybe if you get the patient a little bit settled down, that's, that's something that could be done next. But either way, hopefully you get the patient pain controlled enough that you can then get the exam and figure out what to do next.
8: Yeah, I think that's right. So in this particular case, a dose of morphine was given and it wasn't quite effective enough, so she also got a dose of fentanyl.
7: All right. So you've got the dose of morphine, the dose of fentanyl on board, the patient's pain is a little better controlled. And of course, then what I need to know, what we all want to know is what is the exam? Is there actually a fetal part presenting? Is there bleeding? What's happening exactly in terms of this labor?
8: Kind of contemporaneously with all of this happening, finally, the OB team arrives after the pain medications had been given and they swoop in to do their sterile vaginal exam with the whole reported rush of fluid. They were worried about premature rupture of membranes. And so they wanted to be careful and they take a look. And they determine she's five centimeters dilated, she's about 50% effaced, and no fetal parts are actually extruding. So no fetal parts actually happening. And of course, an ultrasound gets slapped on pretty quickly, and they determine that the baby looks cephalic in its presentation. It's about 36 weeks in terms of gestational age. And a TOCO shows that the fetal heart rate is in the 130s, with some D-cells that are correlating along with uterine contractions that are happening about every 10 minutes. So things actually look okay.
7: Things look really okay. I mean, I didn't hear bleeding. I didn't hear fetal parts that are presenting. The head is down and engaged. So, these are all really good things. And of course, Jan, at this point, all I'm thinking is how quickly can we push this person into an elevator and get them up to labor and delivery because I got other things to do. And this is not where we want our time to be taken. And honestly, it's better for the mom to deliver in labor and delivery than it is for them to deliver with us. So, I think everything that we've gotten here is that this patient is safe to go up. One of the things you mentioned is the premature rupture of membranes. And so, one of the things that I might do before they leave is just say, you want a dose of antibiotics before we leave? and Because I think that sometimes it gets missed and forgotten and everything else going on. Although labor and delivery is pretty good about remembering to do things like that, I would at least offer, do you want me to give a dose of antibiotics before you leave my department? Making it very clear that the next step is I would like you to leave my department.
8: Yes. And you know, OB, they want to get her out of there too. They'd rather go up to where they're comfortable doing things with all their toys and nurses they're used to. So they also want to expedite the care. And yes, a dose of antibiotics was hung before she left the department. So she goes up to OB. She delivers about 90 minutes after that point. And and mom turns out to be in the hospital for a couple of days because she had chorioamnionitis from her prolonged rupture of membranes. The baby turns out was born with relatively low APGAR scores. And in retrospect, in this case, that was attributed to the opioids that were given to her, morphine in particular, that was given in the ED, although it was hard to link it for sure, But that is one of the things about these opiates, if you give them, that they can have, the babies can be born with low APGAR scores. In this particular case, it was. But the baby did fine. Baby went to NICU for some sepsis, baby discharged day number six, does well at all of the well baby visits, is unfortunately or fortunately in foster care, but is, you know, doing fine. So, you know, I think there's a happy ending to the story.
7: Yeah. And the fact that the mom delivered 90 minutes later does kind of come back to this Importance of the duration of the opiate that we give. So maybe fentanyl would have been better because by the time the mom delivered, the fentanyl would be mostly metabolized. We don't really know that, right? We're we're hypothesizing a little bit. This is a little bit of that retrospectoscope. But if we hadn't controlled the patient's pain, we never would have figured out where we were in the labor process and what needed to be done. So we still have to control the pain. That has to be our focus. But I'm wondering, you know, in retrospect, if there was a little bit of an advice of, I would use this opiate instead of this one, avoid this, you know, maybe here's another way to go about doing this. Did you guys get that kind of feedback of, here's what we think we should do in this
8: case? Yes. The recommendation would have been to just do fentanyl and not to go with the longer acting opiate. So that was kind of the take home on this particular case was, you know, if you're going to pick one, pick the one that's shorter acting, as you mentioned, and that might be your best bet.
7: I think it's a really interesting case. And even if it's not the patient in labor, there are other painful presentations that people who are pregnant come in with. And we need to know how to manage the pain. We need to be comfortable managing the pain appropriately, understanding which drugs are safe, which drugs aren't safe. And I guess this is just another call to say, you should get nitrous because it just makes things a lot easier.
8: <laughs> yeah, I like it. It's another argument for nitrous. So I, you know, it's one of those scenarios you probably didn't think about using it in, but I agree it'd be a great scenario to use it in.
7: Jan, when you took this case and you sum it up for your residents, because I know you got a lot of trainees running around, and this is one of those cases that everyone's going to be talking about. What were the kind of things that you honed in on and said, here's what you got to take away from a case like this?
8: Yeah. So some of the take-home points here is number one, you know, when you have somebody who comes in in labor and they're in a lot of pain, it is okay to give them pain medicine. And when they need it, analgesia is certainly indicated. And certainly we could say the preferred method and the most common way would be to deliver those opioids along with some local anesthetic by an epidural or spinal analgesia, because certainly that would result in less systemic effects for the patient and for the fetus. But I agree with you, it's just not practical, not going to happen in the emergency department. So there are some other options. I like the nitrous option. That is definitely one that you can go with. There's also local anesthetic options like pudendal nerve blocks, but certainly those aren't things that we do very often. So I don't think any of us are going to be doing that. But the OB, of course, colleagues pointed out that they use that for, you know, laceration repair post-delivery. So that's one option. And although systemic opioids are not favored because of their side effects, not only do they cause respiratory depression potentially for mom and for baby, they also contribute to nausea, vomiting in some patients, which is not ideal in your very, very gravid patient and some drowsiness potentially in terms of, you know, following commands and kind of participating in the whole labor thing. But that being said, they are okay to give. And if that is what you have, you should give it if they're in a lot of pain. If you have to pick one of the opioids, fentanyl is probably your best option. 50 to 100 micrograms would be a good starting dose, and then defer to OB after that.
7: And I think if the patient was in a little bit more of a precipitous delivery where this was going to happen in your emergency department, just be ready for the fact that I gave an opiate and the baby might come out with respiratory depression and know kind of how to handle that, which I think we do know how to handle it, but sometimes we forget about what we should expect after we use a medication. So I think that's just something to have in the back of your head because this could have been a precipitous delivery, Janet. It sounded like it was going to be a precipitous delivery. Fortunately, you guys had time to stabilize the patient and get her off to the place she needs to go to have the safest delivery she can.
8: Yeah, this would be a much longer segment if we had to also talk about precipitous (laughs) delivery and all the things that could go wrong. Absolutely.
7: Well, I still think there's a lot of really good things to take home in there. And now that we are finished with the case, we can kind of look at what we have lined up for the rest of the month there's some really interesting things in here, but Jan, I'll tell you, the one that I really liked the most was a two-parter with Jess Mason and Brian Lynn talking about some pearls in suturing, because let's be honest, it might not be the most glamorous of procedures that we do, but we do it every shift. We probably do it multiple times every shift, and sometimes we take for granted that we can just do it, and Brian doesn't. Brian really focuses on how we can do it really well so that our repairs come out looking like a plastic surgeon did the work, so I was really happy to hear all these tips.
8: Yeah, that was a really great practical segment. My favorite this month was Sean Nort and Stuart Swadron talking about online suicide kits. This has become kind of a big deal that there's a lot of suicide advice happening online, which is really sad and depressing. And there are some toxicologic ramifications of that that we need to be aware of. So I thought it was an interesting talk.
7: It's good for us to know what is going on out there and what to expect when we hear about these things. So I'm really glad, you know, Sean always seems like he knows what's going on uh, with the kids, with the little kiddos. Because Jen, I feel like sometimes we're a little bit disconnected from what the teens are doing, and it's good to hear Sean talk about these things so that we're a little bit more comfortable if they end up in our emergency
8: departments. Yep, I think that's right.
7: All right, Jen. Well, with that, we are going to launch into our month, and of course, I'll see you on the other side of the mailbag and the mega summary. So, let's go. Let's do this.
8: Absolutely. Let's take it away.
10: Rural medicine talks.
2: OK, so let me set the scene. This took place in a rural emergency room. It was a busy evening shift in the winter before COVID-19 swept the world. There were lots of coughing babies in the emerge that night and an apparent urosepsis outbreak in the elder's home. Of course, her name's Caddy B. This is a rural medicine case, and it's a little different. The electrolyte machine was down. The lab was short-staffed. The ER was short one nurse already because they'd gone on a transfer. Things were under control, but only barely. And I remember thinking to myself, if something bonkers happens right now, we could be in trouble. Soon after that, of course, there came a call from the home care nurse stating that a patient they follow at home wasn't feeling well. She was feeling nauseated, tired, and weak. I usually do home care and will try to visit people at home if I can, but as I was working in the ER and as the nurse felt the patient needed evaluation, I asked them to bring the patient in. So an hour or so later, the patient arrived. She was a 77-year-old female with lung cancer, for which she had been undergoing treatment for the previous about two to three years. She was also on hemodialysis, she had a history of hypertension and diabetes, as well as atrial fibrillation, for which she took rivaroxaban. Apparently, she'd finished a course of radiation about two weeks before, and she was due to see her oncology team in a follow-up in another few weeks. And overall, she was extremely motivated to keep going on with treatment and to enjoy more time with her family. This motivation really came to the forefront because only a few weeks before her husband had died after being ill for a very long time and he'd actually been first brought into the hospital in the exact same er room where she was sitting now so everyone was a little emotional but i got a little bit of history to try and figure out what was going on today So it turned out that two days ago, she'd coughed up a little bit of blood when she woke up in the morning, but she didn't think that much about it. That had happened from time to time in the past few years. In fact, that's what had actually led her to being diagnosed in the first place. She hadn't coughed up a lot this time, and she felt totally fine otherwise, so she went on with her day. Later in the evening, though, she started to feel more tired and was starting to get nauseated. She never actually threw up, but she was pretty uncomfortable from the nausea. She denied any recent fever or chills, chest pain, headache, abdominal pain, urinary, or bowel symptoms. She did have some shortness of breath, but this wasn't new, and as I said, she did have an underlying diagnosis of lung cancer. She was definitely eating less and hadn't had a bowel movement in the previous few days, but she was certainly able to tolerate liquids for the most part.
5: Okay, so you got an elderly lady, history of lung cancer, getting aggressive therapy, wants aggressive therapy... A little bit of hematemesis slash hemoptysis, and now feeling nauseated. Let's get to the exam.
2: On exam, she looked tired, but otherwise she was pretty much the same as her usual self. Her blood pressure was 108 over 76. Her heart rate was 92. She was afebrile. Sats were 94%, and her respirate was 22, but this was her baseline. Her extremities were a wee bit cool, and she did have scant bowel sounds and some mild epigastric discomfort on palpation, but otherwise the exam was really unremarkable. She retched a few times when I was examining her, and she said she was very worried that she was going to throw up. But again, I never actually saw her vomit. So what do I do now? We have this patient with advanced cancer who was nauseated and fatigued and who, it turns out, had had a small amount of hemoptysis a few days prior. Cardi's about to give you her differential diagnosis, but uh, let's make this a little
5: bit more interactive. What's your differential diagnosis? What do you think could be going on acutely in this patient with obviously a fairly complicated Past medical history, I'll give you some time. Da, 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 da. What you doing now? Da, da, da,
2: da, da, da. Okay, So uh, hear what uh, Connie said, and uh, you can compare notes. My differential at this point was really pretty broad. I was thinking about early bowel obstruction from either a metastatic mass effect or perhaps her opioids, ACS, because she's certainly high risk, pancreatitis, and electrolyte issues from renal failure or maybe from a perineoplastic syndrome. Now, given her overall condition, having active cancer, and being on dialysis, I needed to clarify her level of care form before I could decide how to proceed. She had signed herself level of care 1, which in our institution means that she wanted everything possible to be tried in order to restore her life, prolong her life. But she had seen her oncologist a few times since I was signed, and because we didn't have copies of her recent appointment notes, I wasn't sure if her prognosis or wishes for her future had changed. So I double-checked. I double-checked, and she was still level 1, and after confirming that she was, I ordered a few fairly straightforward labs and an ECG. The ECG was really unremarkable, nothing alarming, no clear ischemic changes, and initial labs were pretty unremarkable as well. Her potassium was 5.7, but she was due for dialysis the next day, so that was pretty good, and life base was normal. Her abdominal series x-rays showed some gas, but there was no signs of obstruction or ileus. So where did that leave me? Well, really no further forwards in terms of why she was tired and nauseated. But then, just as I was heading in to talk to her, a nurse came out of the room carrying a pile of very soiled bedclothing, accompanied by the distinct smell of Melina. The nurse had already called her colleague for help, but clearly this patient just moved up the list in terms of people I was worried about in the ER at that time. The patient was now very pale, and she looked sweaty and anxious. Her family were there, and they were trying to get her dressed into a fresh gown. I noticed a fleck of blood on her chin at that point and asked if she had coughed again. She said, oh, yeah, a few minutes before I had that huge bowel movement, I'd burped and coughed and she wiped her mouth on a Kleenex. Apparently, she was about to check the Kleenex to see if there was blood in it when the Melina overtook her and she was distracted by that. Her daughter then retrieved the Kleenex from the bedside table and opened it up, revealing a lot of bright red blood. And now I was really concerned. This anticoagulated patient with a history of lung cancer and recent radiation therapy in an area adjacent to her bronchus had coughed up a small amount of blood two days before, felt progressively weaker and nauseated since then, and now had melina with a recurrence of hemoptysis. This, as you would say, Mel, is no bueno.
5: Well, I'm no doctor and my Spanish is limited, but I would have to agree, this is no bueno.
2: Now I was worried now that perhaps her primary lung lesion or radiation damage to the area had caused invasion or erosion near or into her great vessel, so I grabbed her chart and tried to find her recent CT report. If I was wrong on where her lesion was, and perhaps this was purely a GI source. That wouldn't be great, but it certainly seemed better than a potential airway vessel esophageal fistula situation. But before I could get to the report, the patient answered the question for me. Not with words, but with how she presented. She began coughing. Only a little bit at first, but then it turned into a coughing fit, and I noticed a few pink flecks landing on her hospital gown with each cough. And then the bleeding started. Blood began to pour out of her mouth. She was gagging on it. She was coughing and she was crying. And her family were terrified. And if I'm being honest, I was pretty scared too. This was kind of my worst fear happening. It seemed likely a fistula or erosion between the vessels and her GI tract and bronchial tree. And there was simply no way this lady was going to survive given she was in a tiny remote hospital, which at that time only had six units of O negative blood in its blood bank, and many hours by plane from any specialized intervention. So I needed to tell her and her family this quickly, because she was dying. I explained the situation, and they actually accepted it more quickly than I would have anticipated. Given she was a level of care one when she arrived in the emergency room, and knowing her family and their desire for her to be kept going, I really thought it was going to take longer for them to process everything I was saying. And I certainly wouldn't have faulted them for doing so. It is incomprehensible to come in with fatigue and only an hour later be told you're about to die, particularly when you have survived so many other things in your life. But the amount of blood she was losing was a glaring and stark visual cue for the reality of the situation. I explained that I wanted to use aggressive palliative measures, meaning, and I didn't use this terminology with them, but that I wanted to snow her as quickly as possible so she would be unaware of the process of hemorrhaging to death. They were all so, so sad, and she was clearly devastated. But she said, I wanted to be quick. I had already sent the nurses to gather as many dark towels and sheets as she could find. Surgical linens and dark towels or face cloth are my preferred equipment in these cases because they absorb blood effectively, and the color of the bright red blood is muted and not quite so horrifying for patients and visitors alike. Bright red blood on white sheets is a very stark image. In any home care patient for whom I fear a terminal hemorrhage, I like to plan ahead and have them keep dark sheets and towels at the bedside. But we hadn't even reached that stage with this patient, so it was all being done on the fly. I also called for some emesis basins lined with surgical cloths, and you use the cloths in the basin to absorb the blood, and to dampen the sound of the blood pouring into the metal basin. Now in our hospital, we have some pre-written order sheets for patients at risk of terminal hemorrhage, and I ask that the meds for these be drawn up. We gave her 10 milligrams of morphine and five milligrams of midazolam and 0.4 milligrams of scopolamine every 10 minutes. And we did this twice. And at that point, she became unconscious. In the interval while waiting for the meds to work, she had vomited up at least 500 cc's of blood and had another significant episode of Melina. And there was nothing to suggest that the bleeding was going to stop while she still had a blood pressure and a functioning heart. But she was able to quickly say goodbye to her family members. And then she fell asleep. We removed the IV And the monitor and cleaned her up and let her family sit with her as she took her last breaths it was actually a lovely moment between her family members who all kept saying how grateful they were that they had come to the hospital with her but you could also see that they were still in shock and would not realize what had really happened for many days to come so looking back on this case now it reminded me of a few key factors For my home care patients, as I said, if there is even the slightest risk that a terminal hemorrhage could occur as the patient is dying, it is important to warn the patient and the family of this risk, even if it's only a mention and an outline of a plan what to do. Most people fear dying from cancer means either dying in pain or dying with extreme dyspnea, and they don't really picture the hemorrhaging. So anything to prepare them for this possibility, without overwhelming them, of course, is a key to good palliation. Similarly, being sure to regularly check follow-up scans and reports because the status of a patient will change. Now, some might think how terrible for this patient to be in a remote place where there was really no hope in heck of survival because there were no specialists nearby to perform broncs or ablations or what have you. But in this instance, I would actually counter that our little hospital in the middle of nowhere might have been exactly the right place for this patient. If she were in a larger center, she would have still bled that much and she would have been headed for an ICU or an OR or an interventional radiology suite. But would she have made it, quite possibly given the amount of blood she was losing? She could have died en route in an elevator or a hallway with a stressed out orderly desperately trying to get her to the second floor. This way she was with her family, in the room, where her husband had recently died and she was on her traditional territory. Despite being level of care one when she arrived, she was so quick to see that she couldn't survive this, she allowed us to palliate her aggressively and effectively. So we need to be upfront with our patients and their families and explain clearly that prognosis changes suddenly so our patients have the chance to make an informed decision about how they spend their last minutes or hours.
5: A lot of good information here. In a case that's really tragic, I actually had one very similar to that, and we didn't do some of those tricks like using the dark bedclothes, but we did aggressively sedate the patient. In my case, this patient knew that this could happen had actually been instructed by their family medicine doc that this was a possibility. So when they came to the emergency department, they kind of knew what was going on. The only difference we did, in addition to this sort of aggressive sedation that CARDI did, was to actually place an ET tube. And we did this not to ventilate the patient, but actually to reduce sort of the blood all over the place kind of scenario that we had. And we connected the ET tube to suction, and there was just a tremendous amount of blood pouring out of that. But it sort of appeared to make the patient feel a little better, although they were aggressively sedated. And it certainly made the family a bit more comfortable that we were ex- sort of extracting this blood without it just pouring all over the place. And this idea of the dark bed sheets, both you know on the bed, around the patient, and even in containers which are collecting maybe somebody who's actively vomiting, is another great pearl. The key thing here is to recognise this can happen, particularly in that situation where you've got that person with radiation to the chest, and a little bit of coughing, and a little bit of blood. Is that blood coming from the airway? Is it coming from the GI tract? Or as in this case, could it be coming from both? And this is the harbinger of a gigantic terminal bleed that you're gonna have to manage very quickly. And you are gonna have to switch from starting to work the patient up to aggressively palliating. When this happens, it happens fast. So be ready for it. If you can be heads up, if you can have clear communication, if the patients understand what's going on and that you're gonna make sure that this transition is as comfortable as possible, they will thank you for a very, very long time.
7: It's time again for The Devil's Advocate. Oh, oh I like that. That's good, Scott. We're keeping that one.
11: The Devil's Advocate.
7: With one guy. Hooah! This is Critical Care Mailbag, but these are segments prompted by you, Scott, things that we said that you were like, well, I want to let add a little bit to this one. I, I got some thoughts on this. And Scott, for this piece, we've got three different things that you sent to us from the November episode that you wanted to get into. So I know you're ready, but I'm going to ask anyway. Are you ready?
12: I am so
13: ready.
7: All right, let's hit this simple one first. Number one. And that's about lactate in body fluid. Back in November 2021, in the intro, Jen and I talked about a case of possible septic arthritis, about sending a lactate level on that synovial fluid to diagnose the septic joint. And you had some comments on how best to actually send that lactate to get those results. And I looked into this pretty extensively a few
11: years ago when I saw a bunch of the literature on things like the synovial fluid. And the other real areas that people aren't doing it in, and you probably should be, is things like CSF. This is a much better market than a lot of the other stuff for things like meningitis. And if you're looking for empyema, pH and lactate, but pH especially, and it's going to be the same answer, of that fluid you take out of the chest, it's really key to have. The best way to run these is on a blood gas analyzer. And it can be the point of care one you have in your ED, or it could be the one upstairs. Now, we got a lot of pushback from the the stat lab upstairs saying, oh, this is not blood. We can't do that. And we actually spoke to the manufacturer. And at least for our machine, they're like, oh, we don't care what it sticks in there. Uh, you know, it's basically all the same fluid to us. And, you know, it, it's, it's a closed system. It's not touching any of the electronics differently. So it's fine. Now, you do want to figure this out ahead of time because otherwise there could be a big delay. And these delays are problematical because you actually want this test to be sent either on ice or run immediately if it's going to be done on a blood gas analyzer. So if they're like talking to their manager about whether this is okay or not, well, you're going to get very uh, inaccurate results. Now, you said, Swami, at your place that they didn't like this idea.
7: No, they didn't. And they, they gave us exactly what you said. Oh, it's going to mess up the machine. It's going to mess up calibration. It's going to cause lots of different problems. That's what I've gotten from the last three hospitals labs that I've worked in. We were able to work it out in my prior place by doing exactly what you said checking with the manufacturer, talking to the head of the lab, and kind of coming up with a, with a system and approach and saying, yeah, this is totally safe to do. Let's just put it all in writing.
11: Yeah. Now you pointed out why they don't like doing this, even once they find out it's safe. This you know, could be worked out. And it sounds like you did, but the values for everything else are totally screwed. And in many places that requires them to rerun the sample by dictum. They're not allowed to not do it. And that's why they hate you doing this without a good process in place. But For you in the ED, if you have a blood gas machine or a point of care lab, and you just want to do this without all of the hassle, then there's no reason you should not be able to run it on your machine in the emergency department. Now check with the manufacturer, but I think what they will tell you, as long as they themselves have approached this issue at least once, is it will be just fine.
7: And it's usually easier to do this if you have a machine in your department, because usually that machine is run by respiratory therapy, and you know them because they live in your department, you know them well, and they're... A little bit easier going about getting this done. Absolutely. Number two. All right, let's hit number two. This was about the ketamine awake piece that Darren Brody and Brian Driver spoke about in November 2021. Now we've talked about Awake Intubation a number of times, Scott. We've talked about the ketamine awake. We talked about awake awake. With this particular piece, what were your thoughts that you wanted to clarify?
11: Well, first, you know, thanks for having Brian Driver in our specialty. What a maven of good research. And this is another one of the retrospective near database studies, which, you know, we really cast shade upon in the previous discussion on the hemodynamics of ketamine. That is not as applicable here because in that case, if you remember, Swami, we actually had a randomized controlled trial answering the exact question that these uh, retrospective studies then tried to analyze, and that, that should never really be happening. This one's different. We have not published an RCT on awake ketamine, so it's perfectly appropriate to do a retrospective database look and to see. And what they found is it didn't look great. And that might, you know, in your mind say, oh, well, we probably shouldn't be doing Ketamine Awake until we get more data. And I wanted to just discuss some of the nuances on why I don't necessarily agree with that. All right, let's do it. Here's the thing. And like, this is not in any way to cast dispersions against the constituents of the near database, the actual hospitals involved, but it's a spectrum of emergency medicine. Some really, really high-level resuscitative shops, and some that may represent, you know, a more middle ground. And that's fine. In fact, that's probably what you want for a broad-based emergency medicine database because you want to represent the whole specialty. But numerous trials from the NEAR database, what shows is a lack of familiarity with cutting-edge techniques. And, and Ketamine Awake is, you know, a cutting-edge technique. And so what I, when I looked at that trial, realized is that we're not really talking about the same thing. So I want you to imagine you're in your mind two columns, Swami. There's the patients that should get RSI and the patients who should get an awake intubation. And you ask me if we need any clarification to figure out who goes into which category.
7: Yeah, well, let's, let's clarify it a little bit.
11: In emergency medicine and critical care at this stage of the game, there are many reasons you should be shunted to an awake category. There's the obvious ones, which we talk about, we teach all our residents about, you learned about when you were training with the anesthesiologist, which is anatomical difficulties. And in a patient who's a predicted difficult airway, who's actually breathing, they probably should get an awake intubation. Then there's all the physiologic reasons, which we don't talk about as much, but are just as pertinent. Things like hypoxemia, metabolic acidosis, depending on your route to go and hemodynamics, all might shift you to this awake category. For pretty much everyone else, you should get RSI. So you have these two categories, and what you will find in that near trial is that there were patients getting ketamine only for the awake, which is appropriate in my mind, and then there were people getting ketamine only who should have gotten RSI, which is grossly inappropriate and is often a marker of places that are either scared or not able to use paralytics, that's a problem. No one who is in the RSI category should be getting ketamine only because you're decreasing your first pass success rate, and there's an excellent chance you will have to fail that ketamine only to a paralytic. And this happened a ton in that trial, is patients who were given ketamine alone, were then shunted to get a paralytic, like an insane percentage. I don't remember the exact number. That tells me they were not the patients who were categorized as should get an awake intubation. They were instead, in my mind, patients who clearly should have gotten an RSI who, for whatever reason, the docs involved said, let's see if we could do it first with ketamine. That is a very mixed bag of results and skill level to determine whether ketamine awake is appropriate or not. Now you tell me if I have to disambiguate that Swami.
7: No, no, that totally makes sense. And and, you know, we did discuss the sedative only approach, the ketamine only approach just a couple months ago in April. And people should go back and check that out and listen to that at length of all of the different caveats, and all the different qualifications for when you are reaching for that approach and not your typical RSI approach. I think that we have actually spent a good amount of time really sussing that out. Absolutely. Now, in the patients
11: who shunt to the awake category, appropriate awake category, there's really two paths. Well, actually, there's three. So let's put in the third one up front. There are patients who clearly should get an awake who, due to the lack of familiarity with the practitioners, get RSI anyway. That's bad. Sometimes you'll get away with it and sometimes you won't. And that's inappropriate. But if you go to the second option in that awake group, in many places, not feasible, and that's why they default to RSI. And the second option is to do a perfectly topicalized awake intubation. Now, this requires a skill set, not a really hard-to-acquire skill set. It requires some equipment and medications. Those are a little tougher to get. But if you have these and you know what the hell you're doing, this is gorgeous because the patient has a perfect preservation of everything. They're completely awake. You could coax them into sticking a laryngoscope in the back of their throat and sticking a tube in. That's fantastic. Most places can't do that and default, well, not default, they fall back to RSI even though the patient's in that awake category. So just like you shouldn't use ketamine alone for a patient in the RSI category, you shouldn't be doing RSI for a patient in the awake category. But in many places, that's the only option. And what ketamine awake
7: actually gives you is the third option in that awake column. So we have those three options laid out in front of us. We have to look at the patient in front of us and determine which of these options is viable, but also we have to look at our own skill set and say which one is viable based on the skills that I have, and then decide which way we're going to go down. And, and I agree with you. I definitely lived for a very long time in the group of, well, an awake would be better, but I don't have that skill set, so I'm doing RSI. And it does not go nearly as well as I would have liked to think it would.
11: Absolutely. Now, if you did a trial of just that awake column and compared those three groups, I think what you would find is that the ketamine clearly moves ahead of the other two in places that aren't perfectly set up for this topicalized awake intubation and we are at at my places perfectly set up for it and there's still times i choose to use a ketamine awake and it's because i don't feel because of the patient's medical condition that they will either tolerate or want to tolerate being coaxed through even though i could make them numb eventually it takes a little while it takes five minutes or so and they might not have that time But even in those situations, they are just not going to be happy with the gentle coaxing it's going to take. Ketamine awake, when you compare the patients who actually need an awake intubation, in my experience, which is, you know, the three most dangerous words in medicine, is a remarkably safe, remarkably effective technique. But it is a cutting-edge technique, and so you really have to have a familiarity with the drug and a familiarity with the intubating conditions of ketamine, because it is dramatically harder to intubate a patient with a ketamine awake than with an RSI, and it's in some ways harder than even a topicalized, fully cooperative patient, and if you don't know how to do that, and it requires a higher skill set than standard RSI laryngoscopy, if you don't know how to do that, then it's going to look bad, and you will have the results of the near retrospective look.
7: It's going to be a hard study to get done and get that data out. But what it tells me, and we have talked about this many times in the past, it's not necessarily just about whether this technique is better than that technique. It's whether this technique in this operator's hands is better than that technique in the same operator's hands.
11: Absolutely. It's going to be real difficult to do a trial. We're going to publish our case series of this. And we've had no problems, as far as I can recollect, with any of our ketamine awakes, nothing near issue. What seen in the NEAR database, uh, no significant complications at all. But don't regard me saying that as any useful information until it's actually in print and peer-reviewed.
7: Well, we look forward to that, and we'll, uh, we'll bump that over to the EMA guys to talk about, it and we'll talk about it when it comes out as well.
3: Number three.
7: And Scott, that brings us to our last point in Devil's Advocate. Again, from the November 2021 MRAP, this was actually the critical care mailbag on fluid resuscitation and responsiveness that we did. And we got a listener question basically saying, How is it that we feel comfortable so rapidly moving away from Manny River's approach and Manny River's data of lots and lots of fluids to the approach that we kind of touted in November of limited fluids and early use of vasopressors? And I also want to say, Scott, that the listener who wrote in said, I believe you, and this is what I do, but I just want to know, how did we get here so quickly?
11: Wow. I don't know if we got here quickly. It's been over a decade of accumulating evidence that has slowly chipped away at each aspect of the original early goal-directed therapy trial. So, you know, let's take away the easy ones. CVP demonstrated to be completely non-utile and probably not representative of what we care about. And in fact, we have evidence from folks like Philippe Rolla and others who are doing the work on Vexis that pushing them to the CVPs in the early goal-directed therapy trial is actually deleterious. In fact, You could use CVP if you use it at all as a marker of, oh, God, we've gone too far at the levels that were actually being advocated in the early goal-directed trial. Uh, What other easy ones? Central venous oxygen saturation, the original work said lactate was as good, and now the belief is you don't need either of them. In fact, that number was a way of figuring out if the patient had low inotropy and cardiac output before the major availability of echocardiography in the emergency department. There's really no reason to do it at all, because all it told you to do is either give blood transfusions, which were dangerous and absolutely not necessary if the patient's above seven. We have got countless critical care trials to show that. Or the patient had low inotropy, and this is really the key, is if you don't have an echo, how the hell do you know? Well, this was a number that could tell you, oh, this patient needs uh, dobutamine or other inotropes. But we have a direct way of knowing this now. You can throw the echo probe on. So SCVO2, I don't even know if anyone's doing this anymore. Is anyone that you know of still doing SCVO2, Swammy?
7: No, I stopped checking those. It's got to be about eight, nine years at this point.
11: Absolutely. All right, so then what are we left with? We're left with fluids and then when to pull the trigger on vasopressors. Now, we know a few things that have been published subsequent to the original ergol directed therapy. We know now that leaving a patient at a low MAP for any period of time, can be deleterious. You could get a kidney hit. You're probably upping the immune negative effects of the patient's sepsis itself. Your body does not like being hypotensive or, to put it more carefully, hypoperfused. So getting the map up or protecting the map, as we say on MCRIT, is absolutely key. So early vasopressors, absolutely necessary. Then we found out that early vasopressors actually do what we thought we were accomplishing with the fluids, which is since it doesn't just squeeze the arterial side, it squeezes the venous side as well, you actually get a more durable return of blood to the heart, which is all you really want to do with the fluids. And then trials like the African fluid trial and all sorts of other things make us really feel that excess fluids beyond what the patient needs is deleterious. So it took us, uh, you know, what, probably two decades now to accumulate this evidence wasn't quick at all. It just has been hit after hit, knocking down the original tenants of early goal-directed therapy. But do not throw that amazing landmark trial out. Because from my mind, even at the very beginning, when the early goal-directed therapy trials were first published, the take-home was not the individual steps. The take-home message of that trial was one group, in a very good ED, was just kind of left to their own devices, when after the initial resuscitation and then you know the nurses docs would check back in on them see how they're doing see how they're doing the early goal directed therapy group in that trial had a fellow sitting at the bedside for the entirety of the time they were in the ED watching them like a hawk for any perturbations or issues that came up and my belief in my heart swami is that that was where the mortality benefit of the early goal directed therapy trial came from now you can't assign a fellow to sit at the bedside for every super sick patient. But it does point to the utility of having a dedicated resuscitation team for sick patients who are outside of the regular flow of the department and therefore cannot have to worry about the waiting room, but could actually be checking on these patients far more avidly. And I believe that that is where all of the mortality benefit of early goal-directed therapy came from.
7: And I think that's why that trial is so important for us to understand. And things that get lost in the study. Actually, Ken and I spoke on Time to Talk a Little Nerdy a couple of months ago about performance bias. And this is a great example of that, where we don't know exactly what was in that protocol for how the patients were managed in terms of the amount of staff and the staff resources that went into the management of it. But you know, early goal-directed therapy really came out when, when I was just a medical student. I'd never really lived taking care of patients pre-early goal-directed therapy. But when you talk to the people who've been doing this a lot longer than you and I have, Scott, they tell you septic patients died. That's what happened. But this early goal-directed therapy approach told us they don't have to die if we put the time and resources into a proper resuscitation and proper care.
11: Absolutely. It put it on the map that septic patients are super sick and deserve resources and care.
7: And so while over the last 20 years, we have taken apart pieces of early goal-directed therapy, let's not take that to mean that we don't respect what Manny Rivers did, because it was a game changer back then. 100%. All right, Scott, that is The Devil's Advocate. We've tackled a number of issues, and I guarantee that we will tackle a number more in the next Devil's Advocate. I can't wait to hear what you got problems with in our upcoming segments.
11: I'm sharpening my pitchfork as we speak. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, bye-bye.
6: Because one board in toxicology was not enough, he got two.
13: Put your hands together for Dr. Sean
9: North. North. and Stuart Swadron. In toxicology sessions. Okay, Sean, so we're going to talk about the cheery topic of online suicide kits. Now, to be fair, as dour as this is, it's nothing new. There have been written formulae for taking one's life from time memorial these have been you know biblical times i'm sure but what's so scary about this is the amplification of these deadly recipes on the internet and and that that's really scary that's the perfect word
14: actually it's amplification because yeah books forever methods forever internet websites on how to do it but stuff getting shipped to your house right so that's why we're seeing so much more of this
9: wow Okay, so we're going to talk about some of the latest and not greatest recipes that are uh, being touted as suicide kits online.
13: Sodium nitrite.
9: And first off, one of the the most hits, as I understand it, is high-dose sodium nitrite. What's going on here, Sean?
14: So sodium nitrite is used for food processing, right, of people who make sausage and food preservation. So it's really easy to get. So you can get this food-grade, massive container of sodium nitrite. And unlike the other ones that we're talking about are actually making gases, this is a massive ingestion. And they're taking grams of this stuff. And what does sodium nitrite do? It causes methemoglobinemia. But this is not your grandma's methemoglobinemia. This is massive. I mean, you just see huge amounts.
9: So just for context, usually when we see a case of this, the patient's blue, maybe the methemoglobin level comes back at 10, 15, 20, 25. I've seen higher, but in these cases, we're talking like, 75, 80%, right? You can't live like yeah. that, right? It's like a functional mass of anemia, right?
14: That's what it is. So you're right. You know, People can be blue and asymptomatic. They can be blue and a little bit of dyspnea. But you're saying like 50%, 60%, and 70 is when we really start worrying that this is not compatible with life. And that's what we're seeing. And because they have a bunch sitting in their gut, it's prolonged methemoglobinemia.
9: Okay, Sean. So we have this patient who's pretty critically ill. They're blue as a smurf, I imagine, hemoglobin, methemoglobin level in the 70s, 80s. How do we approach this?
14: So of course, this patient, you're going to intubate, right? You're going to resuscitate. But remember, oxygen doesn't change the cyanosis. And this is the person that you're going to have that O2 sat that's about 85%. This is one of the conditions where oxygen does not improve the cyanosis and doesn't improve the O2 sat, but it's going to be methylene blue and you're going to give one to two milligrams per kilo IV push over a few minutes. With this patient, I'm going to give two milligrams per kilo, and you're probably going to have to repeat the dose.
9: And Sean, I take it once we've secured the airway like we have, you did mention that, we can go ahead and put some activated charcoal down there?
14: Yeah, remember, these are big ingestions. Who knows if it's going to do anything, but there's really little downside to giving him a dose one gram per kilo of activated charcoal.
9: And so the other thing I have to ask you, Sean, is that I take it when we're using these nitrates in such high doses, we're going to also be dealing with some hemolysis in some patients, right?
14: Potentially. So that's the thing we always worry about, even with straight methemoglobinemia and these oxidizing agents, is can they have hemolysis? I think if you're going to see hemolysis in a patient, it could potentially be here. So just something to look for.
9: And so that's a tough situation. What do you do then? You, You transfuse them?
14: And in those cases, this is the role where exchange transfusion might be a treatment
9: to consider. Carbon monoxide. Now let's talk about carbon monoxide. Now, I'm not talking about the carbon monoxide in the garage with the car exhaust, you know, your typical scenario. I'm talking about what's online, mixing two chemicals together to make carbon monoxide. Tell us about this.
14: So what they do is they use formic acid with sulfuric acid. So these are two acids that are fairly easy to obtain. And what that does when they're put together is that generates carbon monoxide and water. And people will go into either a car, a closet, a bathroom, some small space, mix these together, and then generate carbon monoxide gas.
9: Right. And I guess the smaller the space, the more concentrated the effect of the gas is going to be. That's why they go into these smaller spaces. So tell me, do these patients present any differently than the so-called regular carbon monoxide poisoning? What else is special about them?
14: Yeah, yes and no. From a carbon monoxide standpoint, no, right? Carbon monoxide is carbon monoxide. So if you think about methylene chloride, right? Once it's in the body, it's carbon monoxide. But what is different is because, of course, these are strong acids, so they can get thermal burns. But the other thing, particularly the formic acid is very volatile and they can get lung injury from the acid fumes alone.
9: Ah, okay. That makes sense. So I take it, Sean, that in these patients, you would end up seeing some delayed stuff like ARDS that you wouldn't normally see in the carbon monoxide poisoning, for example.
14: That's exactly right, from that volatile acid causing damage to the lungs.
9: All right, so just to recap then, I guess the treatment for carbon monoxide would be as usual with your usual thresholds, but you also have these additional elements.
14: Yeah, so you're going to use high-flow oxygen. There might be a role for hyperbaric from the carbon monoxide standpoint, but remember, these are caustic exposures. So you want to decon the patient. You want to fully expose them. You want to protect you and your staff. And then, of course, we have to worry about those delayed lung injuries from the volatile acid fumes.
13: Hydrogen sulfide.
9: All right, Sean, let's move this up a notch in terms of gruesome. Let's talk about a similar situation where you can combine two chemicals in a closed space, but also take out family members and EMS providers that try to help. Let's talk about hydrogen sulfide. How is that made?
14: Yeah, so this is particularly scary, and what they'll do is they use an acid, and the most easily found acid in the house is toilet bowl cleaner. This is very strong hydrochloric acid, and then you just need some sort of sulfur source. So this was first described in Japan, and they use bath salts, not the drug of abuse bath salts, but lime sulfur. People have used selsin shampoo, selenium sulfide shampoo, pesticides, fungicides, anything that has sulfur. When you put this together, the acid and the sulfur, you get hydrogen sulfide knockdown gas. And this is the one that kills people and kills people quick.
9: Wow. And you know, it's very interesting about the odor and the fact that there's no warning for these workers. Even though we all know that hydrogen sulfide smells like rotten eggs, that's something that they lose the sense of very quickly after they're exposed to this. And then they have no warning system, right? That is fascinating.
14: It is. So if you remember whenever smelling this in chemistry class or something, you know, I knew a little about toxicology and started thinking, oh my gosh, this is hydrogen sulfide. But there is this anosmia that happens as the levels get higher. So the great warning property is not a great warning property. And then as they get really high, this is why we call it the knockdown gas. People jump into the pit or in this case, open the car door or go into the bathroom and then multiple people can go down. Right.
9: Now, in terms of how it acts, hydrogen sulfide is really similar to cyanide, isn't it? Can you, can you remind us how it, it works?
14: Yeah. So it's what we call a cellular asphyxiant, and it doesn't work at exactly the same spot as cyanide, but clinically, it looks exactly the same where you, like a light switch, go from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism or respiration, and you go down really quick. The good thing, unlike cyanide, is if you remove them from the source and start resuscitating them, they usually do... Good. These people are often found dead or very close to dead, but if you get them out of the source, you don't need to give them an antidote like you do with cyanide.
9: So it's great if you can get them out of the place where they're at soon enough, but it's just not the case that often, unfortunately.
14: Unfortunately, not. Now, I did mention cyanide. So you're going to have in your differential diagnosis, particularly if you don't know, clinically this can look like cyanide. So given the hydroxycobalamin, five grams, that's 70 milligrams per kilo in pediatric patients, up to five grams. There's some data that suggests maybe it works in this, but if you don't know if it's cyanide, similarly though, sodium nitrite, which we just talked about trying to kill people, that creates, the way that it works in cyanide poisoning is it creates methemoglobinemia that causes cyanomethemoglobin, and then that can be excreted. What it can do in this poisoning is it can make that methemoglobin into sulfhemoglobin, which actually improves oxygen delivery And it's relatively non-toxic.
9: But there's a fine line there, right? Because if you go overboard, then you're going to reduce your oxygen-carrying capacity.
14: Of course. We have to be really careful. We don't want to overshoot with the sodium nitrite and make them more methemoglobin, which is really now they don't have any oxygen-carrying
9: capacity. So consult your toxicologist. (laughs) That's right. So Sean, you're basically saying that if there's some question it's okay to go ahead and give the hydroxycobalamin. If you're not sure, this might be cyanide.
13: Carbon dioxide.
9: Okay, Sean, one more toxic mix to finish with. This one is the generation of carbon dioxide by mixing two things together. Tell us about that. So yeah, there
14: was a case published of an adolescent, unfortunately, who died by using baking soda with citric acid putting a bag over his head and then mixing the two chemicals in the bag, and that generated carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, unlike carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide is what we call a simple asphyxiant. And what that means is if you're in a tight spot or have a bag over your head, it displaces the ambient oxygen. The good thing is if you catch that person early and remove them from that, they will start breathing ambient air or supplemental oxygen. And hopefully have not had a devastating injury already. But we want to mention this since we we're going along these, hey, how do people kill themselves with these mixing chemicals? This is one we thought we would throw in too because it's really
9: easy to find these chemicals in the house. All righty then, agreed. And just, Sean, to round things off, in terms of disposition, I take it that most of these patients are headed to the ICU, or at least if they're not intubated, to a monitored bed on a non-rebreather mask. Any other comments about dispo?
14: Yeah, so remember, these are intentional poisonings, so consider co-ingestions, obtain your acetaminophen and salicylate levels. If they're minimally symptomatic, I'm still admitting these people to a monitored setting for a minimum of 24 hours. As an inpatient, they can get their psychiatric consultation. And the other thing is, now they're often found by law enforcement or family member and then hazmats on scene. But if you get the history that they were presenting without that, you want to make sure you let law enforcement and HAZMAT know, particularly with the carbon monoxide chemicals and with the hydrogen sulfide chemicals, because that can be a really dangerous situation wherever this was, a home, car, office, wherever it be.
9: All right. That's an excellent, excellent point. You can save some extra lives on top of the one that you've just dealt with in your recess bay. Love it, Sean. So... Uh... Hopefully we'll have something a little more cheery to talk about next time, but probably not, right? It's a toxic you're a toxicologist. <laughs> <laughs> nah, well,
14: well, I don't think we could get much more grim than this one. So uh, <laughs> nothing but go on looking up from now
9: on. Okay. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. All right, thank you, sir. Summary. Okay, then I'm just gonna swoop in here with the quick summary. This is what your patients may unfortunately be reading how to do on the internet. The first one is getting a hold of large quantities of sodium nitrite, and that can cause a severe methemoglobinemia. These patients also have severe respiratory distress and tachypnea, acidemia, they can seize, and so generally they're intubated and treated with a high-end dose of methylene blue. And then we get into some various toxic mixtures. The first one is combining formic acid and sulfuric acid, and that makes carbon monoxide. And the teaching point there is that in addition to the CO poisoning that you have to deal with in the usual way, that these patients also get caustic injuries. So they can have lung injury, they might get ARDS. The staff need protection with PPE to make sure that they don't get exposed. And so that's the twist there. The scariest mix that we talked about was when people combine any type of acid like toilet bowl cleaner with a sulfur-containing agent, and there's many, many of those, even shampoos, and that creates hydrogen sulfide gas, which is really bad. That's knockdown gas, and it can kill rescuers and family members, unfortunately. And the treatment for that is to essentially remove the person from the exposure and give them maximal oxygen. And the last deadly combination that we talked about is, in my mind, actually even scarier still because it's so simple and it just involves making carbon dioxide, which is really just a simple asphyxiant, from simple agents like citric acid and baking soda and covering your head with a bag or something. And uh, treatment for that also involves removing the patient from the source and administering high-flow oxygen. Sean recommends admitting all of these patients to the ICU setting, and even if they're minimally symptomatic, to admit them to a monitored bed for at least 24 hours. A site consult's obviously important, as is a hazmat assessment of the home or the place where this happened, because it could affect other people. And there's your quick summary.
7: recently got a request to do a segment on superior vena cava syndrome, not a topic we've discussed on MREP in the past, but we do have a corpendium chapter on it. So instead of doing the research myself, I've got our editor for that section, Dr. Tarlan Hedayadi on to talk about this. And Tarlan is the chair of the division of education at Cook County in Chicago. Tarlan is all over the place in terms of lecturing both across the country as well as internationally. And Tarlan, it's great to have you on the audio part of this program because I feel like corpendium's really been hogging you up.
3: It's great to be here, Swami. I'm happy to give my time to Corpendium and you. All right,
7: well, let's get into this. SVC syndrome, I'll be honest, I think I've only seen a couple of cases. Let me change that. I think I've only caught a couple of cases in the emergency department. Who knows if I've missed this before. Let's start basic. What exactly is SVC syndrome?
3: If you think about the SVC, the superior vena cava, it's formed by the right and the left brachiocephalic veins, and those drain the upper extremities, the head and the neck. And SVC syndrome is basically an obstruction of that superior vena cava. And it can happen either because of some kind of internal or intraluminal pathology like a thrombus, or let's say a tumor is invading the vessel, or it can be extraluminal compression. So maybe there's a mass that's pushing on the vessel. Most of the time, we're going to see this in the setting of malignancy, so specifically lung cancer or lymphoma. There are some other things to be aware of, though. So with the rise of the implantable devices like pacemakers and ICDs, which is you know, my absolute favorite thing to talk about, one of the consequences of these devices is because they have those leads that travel through the superior vena cava into that right atrium you can develop thrombus along those leads, and then that can manifest as superior vena cava syndrome. Fortunately, it's pretty rare in in that setting. Patients who have ports or if they have you know lines for chemotherapy or long-term infusions, they're at risk for developing SVC syndrome. And then lastly, the end-stage renal disease patients. So patients who have either an IJ or a subclavian, so a high line, are at risk for SVC syndrome.
7: I think it's good to clarify that thrombus accumulating on the device that we've put in place, because I think we often think about these in cancer patients, and that's where I typically think about this disease. How do these patients actually present? What are we supposed to be looking for? What should we be looking for in those presentations that maybe pushes us towards SVC syndrome?
3: So the symptoms can be very vague, unfortunately. And when you look at the literature the most common complaint is going to be dyspnea. And if you think about the differential for dyspnea, it's so vast, but that's what most patients are going to be presenting with. They may come in saying they're having facial swelling or they have facial edema. It could be just periorbital or it could be the full face that they're complaining of. Sometimes it's even more vague, like I have a stuffy nose or watery eyes or a cough, which you know for me is going to be allergic reaction. Or maybe you have you know, a, a upper respiratory infection. They may complain of tongue swelling. They may notice that their neck veins are distended or their chest veins are distended when they look in the mirror. Or they may come in saying that they have upper extremity edema or swelling. Kind of more uncommon is going to be neurologic symptoms. So things like headaches, blurry vision, altered mental status. They may say that they're dizzy, especially when they bend forward. And the dyspnea is the most common complaint. There's a nice case report in the literature. Have you heard of this? Bendopnea?
7: No, I have not heard of this. That doesn't even sound like a real thing.
3: Bendopnea. Dyspnea when bending forward. (laughs) And so that's actually something you want to make sure you ask your patients about. So you want to see, do their symptoms get worse when they either bend forward or if they're in a supine position? Or when they perform a valsalva, and that can really help us kind of get to this diagnosis.
7: I'm gonna have to add this to my list of shortness of breath or dyspnea with clear lungs. Jan and I discussed this pretty recently on an introduction, a case, and that was not on my list of dyspnea with clear lungs. But that's exactly what you're going to see here. Now you said facial swelling, and you said allergic reaction might be kind of what you're thinking about going in. I remember a case where. The patient had a chief complaint of facial swelling. And I always like to think about like, what am I going into this room? What am I thinking about going into the room? And so of course, angioedema, allergic reaction, maybe facial cellulitis or dental abscess. And then I go into the guy has nothing. None of those things. He looks great. And actually he says, well, my face isn't swollen now. It's swollen when I wake up and then it goes away. And, you know, to me that was like, is it really swollen? Like, like you got pictures or something? Is that something that we commonly hear is that, oh, I have swelling in the morning, but then it goes away.
3: Absolutely. And how frustrating for that patient, right? Because they're feeling it and they've seen it, but now they don't have it when they come into the emergency department and we end up thinking they're crazy. Facial edema, very, very common as a chief complaint that ends up being uh, superior vena cava syndrome. It gets tricky when they don't have it in the emergency department and we're kind of at a loss as to what to do next. So if they don't present with that sign specifically in the emergency department, it might be helpful to actually just lay them flat on the gurney and leave them in there. And then see what happens. Come back in a few minutes and see what happens. And maybe you'll actually get to see that facial edema. Maybe you'll see that facial plethora. And that might help make that diagnosis. But just because they don't have it in the emergency department at that moment doesn't mean that they're completely crazy.
7: So you have fairly nonspecific symptoms that can be a little bit all over the place. The physical exam might be fairly benign when you see them. You just gave us a maneuver that we can do to help. Are there other physical exam findings that might push us towards this as well?
3: Yeah. So in addition to looking for the facial edema, you're looking for, you know, JVD or the distended uh, neck veins, the distended chest veins. So make sure you've like fully undressed the patient and you're, you're taking a look at them. It's so easy when somebody comes in with just a facial complaint and then we end up not undressing them. So just make sure you fully undress them and look at everything. One interesting finding in the literature, and there's a host of online videos That demonstrate this is something called Pemberton sign. And so this is where you ask the patient to raise their arms and you basically stand there and watch them become short of breath in front of you and their face is going to become plethoric. And it's going to happen very quickly. They're not going to be able to maintain that position for very long because of that discomfort. The good news in terms of SVC is that it rarely causes hemodynamic compromise. So you're not going to get a patient who's going to come in dyspneic and hypotensive and unstable. The severity of their symptoms is going to depend on their ability and opportunity to develop collaterals. So if the SVC occludes acutely, you're going to see immediate signs and symptoms that are on the order of hours or days, and that's what they're going to kind of tell you in the emergency department. If it's subacute and more insidious, then they've had an opportunity to create those collaterals. So the symptoms may be mild and may have been ongoing for weeks, which unfortunately in the emergency department, and we know this, when somebody comes in and tells you something has been going on for a longer period of time, we may be more likely to dismiss it because we're always looking for those acute findings. But this is the one where you know, dyspnea or facial swelling or upper extremity swelling that's kind of been gradual and going on for weeks or even months, you need to make sure you pay attention to this specific diagnosis. So most of the time, the obstruction is going to happen slowly and they're going to have an opportunity to create that collateral flow. So they're not going to come in looking acutely ill.
7: Let's say that I take the patient seriously. They tell me about this facial swelling only when they wake up in the morning. I'm like, okay, you look great now, but, but I'm going to take it seriously. I'm going to think about SVC syndrome. And the couple that I've seen, Tarlin, were older and had some other risk factors for malignancy, which kind of pushed me down that route. Like I said, I've never seen one that was associated with a device or one of these devices that we've placed. So I've got this patient in front of me where I'm thinking about it. What do I do in terms of diagnosis? Do I start with an x-ray? Is that helpful? Do I go to ultrasound? Do I go to CT? Do I just punt it and admit them and let them get an MRI later? What is the diagnostic modality we should be pursuing in the ED?
3: An initial chest X-ray. It seems like everybody gets that in the emergency department, and it can actually be pretty helpful in this diagnosis. Eighty percent of cases are going to have something on that chest X-ray, whether it's mediastinal widening or some abnormal contour of the mediastinum. You'll get a clue on that initial chest X-ray. And if you don't and you're suspecting this diagnosis, then the next thing you're going to want to go to is CT with IV contrast. And even if you do see something on the chest X-ray, you're going to want to escalate and try to delineate on a CT with IV contrast as to what you're actually looking at. With the CT, you're looking for things like masses that could be compressing, whether it's something in the lung, whether it's a lymphoma with you know adenopathy that's compressing that vessel. Sometimes you can see the thrombus acutely or at least you'll see that there's a filling defect in the vessel if anything's eroding into the vessel that'll be helpful and you'll also be able to delineate the collateral flow on that CT with IV contrast.
7: If you've got that patient where they have a device in place so they've got a hemodialysis catheter, they've got an AICD in place and you're worried about thrombus, do you need to pursue a venous phase on that CT scan? Is a typical CT with IV contrast going to be enough and I guess if it's in the venous side, could I just get an ultrasound and make this diagnosis?
3: So ultrasound, you know, in the emergency department is going to be great for initially ruling out the other stuff. So we're going to be ruling out, is there a thrombus in one of the vessels um, leading up to the arm? But in terms of actually being able to visualize on ultrasound, the SVC, that's going to be relatively challenging. If you take a look at those neck veins on ultrasound, you'll certainly see the distended jugular vein, and you may actually see kind of like this strange flow through the distended jugular vein, and that might help kind of lead to the diagnosis. But in terms of trying to nail this and identify what the underlying cause is, CT is the way you're going to want to go. Now, CT becomes challenging in patients with devices because we end up getting all this artifact with it. But ultimately, that's really the initial modality we have available in the emergency department.
7: I get the patient the CT scan. We find this, you know, my radiologist calls me and says, hey, this guy's got SVC syndrome, either from a thrombus or the more likely situation that I've seen the mass that's growing into that vessel or compressing the vessel. Obviously, I'm going to get some consultants on the phone. I'm going to call cardiothoracic surgery, maybe cardiology, depending on where this thing lies. But the definitive management is obviously outside of the scope of our practice. I'm not going to go in and remove this thing. I'm going to admit the patient. But while we are waiting for that patient to get a bed, to get definitive management, are there things that could develop in the emergency department that we need to be worried about? Or are these patients going to be relatively stable as long as I tell them, you know, you can't lie flat?
3: We really care about the immediate threats in the ED. So that's going to be airway, it's going to be cardiovascular, and those are going to be directly proportional to the acuity of the occlusion itself. So this is one of those airway or respiratory failures where intubation, unfortunately, isn't going to fix the problem. So you may have to go ahead and take the airway to try to stabilize the patient. But ultimately, the issue is going to be that vessel and that occlusion in that vessel, whatever the cause underlying etiology is. So this is where then, yes, you're going to mobilize your consultants. Endovascular stenting has really become one of the mainstays of therapy in treating this disorder. You're going to want to try to pursue this in the emergency department as first-line treatment if the patient has severe acute symptoms like respiratory distress, and that can come from either laryngeal involvement or airway obstruction, or they're altered because of that elevated intracranial pressure from that all that venous pressure. Now, who performs this is going to be different at each play. So whether it's interventional cardiology, or it's interventional radiology, or we even have these minimally invasive CT surgeons who can now come in and do some of these endovascular procedures. But it's a great treatment modality, great success rate. So we're talking 85 to 100% success rates in the literature. If it ends up being something like thrombus, then typically it's been anticoagulation as the mainstay of therapy. However, if the patient is in any way unstable or compromised, then that's when you're going to be pursuing things like catheter-directed thrombolysis or actual thrombus aspiration, again, by IR or your interventional cardiology. Now, if you're not dealing with the acute scenario and they're hemodynamically stable, then you have time. And so you can get radonc involved, and maybe they're going to try to do some radiation. Chemotherapy, especially for things like lymphoma, that might be helpful. And then the other thing is if we're throwing everything at them, then steroids are also another option to consider. And that's going to be helpful in those steroid-responsive malignancies like lymphoma or thymoma.
7: Summary. At the heart of this, I think the crux is in catching the diagnosis. I'm going to add this to my list of dyspnea or shortness of breath with clear lungs as the primary complaint that many of these patients are going to have. Whether that be positional shortness of breath, so bending forward or lifting their arms straight over their head. Hopefully, this isn't like I went to the Mets game and I did the wave and all of a sudden I got short of breath. But these are good maneuvers for us to try to figure out if this is what's at play. But that dyspnea with clear lungs, looking at some of those factors. Having the patient lie down, if they tell you that, well, you know, this happens more when I'm lying down, well, go ahead, lie down, let's see what happens. And in those patients pursuing imaging, if the chest X-ray you get looks kind of funky, go ahead and get the CT scan. That is going to give you the diagnosis. And remember that it's not just about the patients with cancer. It's also about these patients who have indwelling lines, so hemodialysis catheters, or if they have a pacemaker defibrillator. While those are a little bit rarer, that thrombus formation can cause SVC syndrome as well. We need to be looking for it. The CT gives us the diagnosis. We're going to get a lot of consultants on board to help us with management. But if it's a thrombus, we're often going to reach for some kind of anticoagulation. If it's more of a cancer diagnosis, they're probably going to get some treatment for that. Hopefully that'll shrink things up. Steroids might be helpful. And in the acute patient, you do have to look out for airway issues as well as some hemodynamic compromise. While those are less likely to happen, we have to be on the lookout for them. Tarlan, this was great. It's a great review. Hopefully our listener got what they needed. And uh, I can't wait to have you back on to do another one of these.
3: I'd love to. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey guys, this is Dave Glazer from Denver hoping to fuss at you once again. I want to fuss. Al and Rick can rant. What's the fuss? Maybe I'll just fuss. Don't fuss with me. This time the topic is hyponatremia, something we see frequently but may not understand as well as we should. Let's start with the case. The case. A 64-year-old man is brought into the ED by his daughter. Lots of vague complaints. He's not eating well, not acting himself. The daughter found him today wearing his shirt inside out. He's quite a drinker, she reports, mostly beer, but that's never been a big problem, she says. On exam, his vitals are fine, he's Finn looks a bit malnourished. He can carry on a conversation, but the daughter tells you he's not acting normally. No history of falls, but you order some labs, a head CT, and a liter of saline and go about your business. About an hour later, you get a critical lab phone call that the sodium is 108.
7: Hyponatremia at 108 is going to get all of our attention, but couple that with altered mental status. I think we're all leaning towards this being a true medical emergency. Not the patient who comes in with a 126 and you're hemming and hawing about whether the patient needs to be admitted, whether they can go to an observation bed, what you should be doing for them. A true medical emergency, sodium of 108, altered mental status.
1: I would propose that indeed this is a medical emergency, but not in the way most people think. First of all, who dies Of hyponatremia, who dies?
5: Hyponatremia. Okay.
1: A few sorts show up on this list, but they're pretty much all in the acute hyponatremia category. This includes the endurance athlete who drank too much free water during the race. Same for someone with primary polydipsia, formerly psychogenic polydipsia and maybe that young person in from the rave with ecstasy on board who pounded the water all night. There are also some iatrogenic causes and post-operative cases, but we wouldn't likely see them in the ED. The large majority of hypernatremic patients we do see are the chronic ones, though of course this is more based on history as we usually don't have a recent baseline sodium. And what many may be surprised to hear is It's hard to show that anyone in this population ever dies of hyponatremia. Now, maybe there's an acute on chronic population out there, and if anyone is presenting with seizure or coma, I'm not going to argue against fast action. In this setting, some hypertonic saline to stabilize the situation. But bear in mind that even the worst symptoms will improve with a 4 to 5 millimole per liter bump in the sodium concentration. If you play back through the years of MRAP regarding severe hyponatremia, there's lots of coverage about giving hypertonic saline with the implicit presumption that these patients are on the verge of death from herniation. Maybe it happens, but if it does, it's exceptionally rare. Again, if they're seizing or in true coma, fine. Give the 100 cc's of hypertonic saline or the AMP of bicarb if you can't find the hypertonic. No one will fault you for it. This could be a case of acute hyponatremia, and people can indeed die of that. Yet, what's also part of the severe hyponatremia teaching? There's always that treatment caution. Oh, bring up the sodium but not too fast. Various authors suggest various goals. Six milliosmoles in 24 hours. It's the same as milliequivalents, by the way. Maybe eight in 24 hours, certainly not more than 12, because anything faster could precipitate cerebral demyelination syndrome, formerly called central pontine myelinolysis. And bear in mind that if this happens, you won't be the one to see it. It generally comes on days later. So if the patient in front of you is stable, as in the above clinical vignette, they're stable. As long as you don't let them drink any fluids, or of course give them IV hypotonic fluids, their sodium won't get any lower and they won't get any sicker. The real danger is in overcorrection and this is why this patient has a medical emergency, because you might overcorrect them and cause devastating and permanent neurologic injury, including locked-in syndrome. Who's at risk for overcorrection? Well, theoretically anyone with a sodium this low, but some more than others. Let's take the above example. His history is consistent with the classic beer potomania, but Just what is that?
7: Well, Dave, it's beer as as in beer, poto as in having been drunk, Uh, mania as in crazy. uh, So it's beer drink crazy. uh, All right, I don't think that's exactly the question Dave was asking. I think what Dave was really getting at is how does beer potomania cause patients to become hyponatremic? And I will put a warning here that this does get a little bit nerdy. Dave gets a little bit into the weeds in how this works. And I know as emergency docs, we hate thinking about hyponatremia and the mechanisms and how it happens. But in the next four minutes, the amount of information that Dave gives us is the kind of stuff that we can throw down on one of our internal medicine colleagues and have them mouth agape, thinking, oh my God, this guy or gal actually knows what they're talking about.
1: The basic problem is that people can't pee pure water. Even the most dilute urine can't be more dilute than about 50 milliosmoles per liter. And just what are these osmoles that go into the urine? They're largely electrolytes and urea, which is the product of protein metabolism. So if you're not consuming protein or electrolytes, however hard your kidneys might try, your maximum volume of urine per day is severely limited. Let's say the average American diet contains 600 milliosmoles of solute per day. If you excrete urine as dilute as possible, you can make 12 liters of urine in a day. This means you can drink 12 liters of fluid and maintain a normal serum sodium and osmolality. If you drink a 13th liter, your kidneys simply can't excrete anymore, so it becomes part of your total body free water, and your serum osmolality drops, and you start becoming hyponatremic. Let's say, however, you get most of your calories from beer. Beer has effectively no solutes in it, no electrolytes, no protein. Carbohydrates don't count. In this setting, maybe total solute intake is 100 milliosmoles per day, largely from the beer nuts you're nibbling along with your 24-pack. So the absolute maximum amount of urine you can make on that diet in a day is two liters. If indeed you drink 24 cans of beer during the day, that's over 8 liters of fluid. You're 6 liters positive net-free water. In fact, anything over a six-pack is going to start diluting out your sodium. By the way, this is the exact same scenario of the tea and toast diet. No solutes there either. Let's now say you've treated the above patient with a liter of saline, which In this case, you did even before you knew what a sodium was. There's just over 300 milliosmoles of solute in a liter of saline, which will generate 6 liters of urine output in this setting. Just how fast do you think the serum sodium is going to go up in this situation with a sudden 6-liter diuresis? Remember, prior to your IV bolus, The free water was just hanging out in the body, itching to be excreted by the kidneys, but they didn't have the solute to do it. You've now given them solute. Okay, let's say you were savvy and only gave that 100 cc's of 3% saline. That's 100 milliosmoles of solute, so it will generate about 2 liters of urine. If you repeated it once, as some guidelines suggest, you're now at 4 liters of urine if you gave 150 cc's twice, as others recommend, that will generate 6 liters of urine. The same rapid free-water diuresis will be seen, though the mechanism is a bit different, if the hyponatremia is due to severe intravascular hypovolemia. It would not be true if this were an SIADH picture, as those patients present with very concentrated urine due to the high levels of ADH. So what's an ED doc to do? You know the sodium should go up just a bit over the first 24 hours, but what should be your response if you recheck the sodium just before admission and it's now gone up 8 or 10 milliequivalents in just an hour or two? Do you trust that the ICU is going to fix your mess? There are two options that you have. Remember, the problem is not what's going into the patient. Presumably, you've stopped giving them anything further but what's coming out of the patient, which in our scenario is lots of very dilute urine. First, you need to get a handle on their urine output. Put in a Foley. This patient is likely going to the ICU. A Foley is the least of their concerns. Next, you could simply match their urine output with dilute fluid input and try to maintain homeostasis. They just peed six liters of dilute urine, give them back six liters of D5W. As you might imagine, though, this will be hard to do. So I, and many others, argue that a better option is a DDAVP, a.k.a. ADH, a.k.a. desmopressin clamp. Turn the damn urine output off, and then they simply can't precipitously raise their serum sodium and osmolality. Remember, it's really the osmolality you care about. The sodium concentration is merely a surrogate marker for this. It's simple. Just give some DDAVP. Doses range from 1 to 4 mics initially, sub-Q or IV. I don't see any reason not to go high here. The goal is to effectively turn off urine output. Remember, what this does is to concentrate the urine. So it might take a 50 milliosmol per liter urine and turn it into a 1,200 milliosmol per liter concentration. This means that the six-liter diuresis that could follow your liter of IV saline will turn into 250 cc's instead. The serum sodium is unlikely to change much if you're not pouring out liters of dilute urine. Does this sound too internal medicine-y beyond your scope of practice? Well, remember, you started with a patient who was brought in because he'd put his shirt on backwards. How does ending up in a locked-in syndrome sound as a direct result of your management? And there's no need to wait for scary sodium numbers to tick up in the results review column. Remember, this is a stable patient. The medical emergency is to not correct them too fast. Give the DDAVP as soon as you've hit that initial 4 to 5 millimole per liter rise in the serum sodium or as soon as the rapid diuresis starts. So, Drop the foley at the beginning, and pay attention to the output. If the initial urine concentration is high, you can get this off the specific gravity or an actual urine osmolality, you likely have an SIADH situation and won't have to head down this path. I really can't think of an analogous situation in medicine. Someone presents with a dramatic physiologic derangement, and the goal isn't so much to fix it as to fix it slowly. Again, the correction is the medical emergency, not the initial sodium of 108. First, do no harm, everyone. Control the rise. Thanks, guys. Take care.
4: No fuss, no muss. Well, I get to talk about one of my favorite subjects today, which is laceration repair. And I have one of my favorite people ever to talk about this subject, and that's Dr. Brian Lynn. He's an attending physician at Kaiser Permanente San Francisco. And also has his academic title through UCSF.
9: And now, the wound
10: warrior, suturing samurai, the laceration legend, Brian Lynn. LacerationRepair.com.
4: Brian, I am a big fan of yours, as you know. And I love your website, LacerationRepair.com. I find so many answers to so many of my questions. So thank you for all the great work that you do there.
15: Thank you. I'm a big fan of yours also, and I love watching your videos too, and I think it's crazy that you and I have never recorded anything together until now.
4: It's a crime that I can't believe we allowed to happen for so long. Prepare
1: to pay for your crimes.
4: Now you have a couple recent blog posts that we're going to focus on today all about common suturing errors, and it's really a deep dive into some of the micro skills that are part of suturing. So when you suture, you may not really even think twice about this, there's all these subcomponent tasks, the way that you hold a piece of equipment, the way that you manipulate tissue, exactly how are you moving your hands or tying a knot, for example. So let's take a few minutes and walk through what you've listed out here in your blog post, some of the micro skills and common errors that we could probably very easily correct.
10: Common suturing errors, part one.
4: When it comes to suture selection, it's really hard to not use the brand name, but we're gonna try to use the generic name when possible. So the one you're gonna hear us mention is polygalactin. And just so you know what brands to associate that with, that's Vicryl, Polysorb, Petkryl, Unisynth, and others, I'm sure.
10: Common error one, choosing the wrong suture for the task.
4: One error that I see made very commonly is you walk up and you see a resident suturing, closing the skin, using something like Vicryl.
10: Polygalactin.
4: When that happens, we've got to stop, remove the sutures, redo them, and have a discussion.
10: Yeah, it definitely
15: happens. You know, I've been teaching a lot of suturing workshops to sub interns recently, and I inevitably, a lot of them, when given the option of a lot of different sutures, it's confusing, and they don't know where to go first and inevitably you'll have some of your novice learners who are using the wrong suture for a given indication, like proline for a deep dermal,
10: polypropylene.
15: We're using a vicryl suture to do a running percutaneous. I've personally especially noted a tendency for beginners to want to use vicryl liberally for epidermal closure, and it's probably not accidental. Vicryl sutures are really pliable because they're multi-filament braided sutures, so they're really easy to handle, much easier to handle off the bat than nylon.
4: Again, vicryl that's polygalactin.
15: I'm always starting to point out to learners the right suture to use. While it's not a big deal if you're practicing in a workshop, learners have to understand that a non-absorbable suture wouldn't be appropriate to place in a buried fashion because it can't be removed, and it's likely going to cause localized inflammation and possibly infection, whereas an absorbable suture wouldn't be appropriate really for an epidermal closure there's gonna be a higher risk of dehiscence, and these sutures have less tensile strength compared with nylon or proline.
10: Polypropylene.
15: Now, of course, all this holds true for suturing 101, but for suturing 102, you can point out that there are specially made absorbable sutures that can be used for epidermal closure. For example, a fast-absorbing plain gut absorbs in five to seven days and can be a good choice for the face, and Rapid absorbs in about 10 days and can be a good choice for the trunk or extremities. But generally, the reason you're gonna avoid regular plain gut and regular Vicryl for the skin, is that they just don't absorb fast enough to be a good choice. Regular gut takes about eight to nine days, Vicryl can take weeks. So they need to be removed anyways, and you lose a lot of the advantages that you get from their non-absorbable counterparts like nylon. Jess, you've got an awesome video on this that sums up the key points regarding common suture materials that we use in the ED. I'd say it's a prerequisite to watch before teaching if you've got any doubts about this stuff.
4: Thanks, and that video is available on MRAP HD.
10: Error 2. Handling the needle with your fingers.
15: Even in a simulation or workshop setting without patients where an accidental needle stick would in theory lead to little risk, I always impress upon learners that all needle handling should be performed strictly with instruments. This includes removing a suture from its packaging, exchanging a needle from the needle driver to the forceps, and disposing of all of your remaining needles and sharps. Learners will find this really difficult to do and will tend to revert to grasping and pinching with fingers. Actively correct this bad habit and validate that using instruments only for needle handling is difficult at first, but it is so important. An article that I will cite a few times in this podcast describes the motion of placing the suture in the tissue as your systolic time. That's the time you spend passing the needle through the tissue. It's pretty uniform for everyone. It's just a few milliseconds. But then there's also this concept of your diastolic time, which is the time you actually spend like tying, cutting, reloading the needle, transferring the needle from instrument to instrument. And that tends to be a bit more variable. And you do have to let people know when they're beginning that diastolic time is gonna be longer until you get really comfortable and facile at being able to manipulate the needle without using your hands.
4: I 100% agree. I've been practicing this way and teaching this way. And thus far, I have not gotten a needle stick. And that's because I don't pick up a suturing needle with my fingers. And one other tip that I have, so when you take out a suturing kit that comes with ads and forceps with teeth, right? And that's because those are really tissue forceps for picking up an everting tissue. But I also open up a suture removal kit because that comes with ads and forceps without teeth. So they're serrated, but otherwise flat at the tip. And I'll use those to pick up the tip of the suturing needle. So not for everting tissue, but actually for handling and manipulating the suturing needle because it can be awkward and a little bit of fumbling if you're using the teethed forceps to try to manipulate and reload your needle.
15: I think that's a really great tip, especially for a beginner, because it is definitely harder to use toothed forceps in the beginning. That's a lot of the challenge of handling a needle. I will point out that the reason why most suture kits have those toothed forceps Is that the idea is you're using that to retract the tissue back before placing the needle and that is way less traumatic to tissue uh, than a flat forcep. When you are actually handling tissue I would actually stick to the toothed forceps or a skin hook but I think it's totally fine to use the flat forceps especially starting out for your needle exchange.
4: Yes, that's exactly right. I like them to have both on their field, so that way they can use the teethed forceps to pick up and manipulate tissue, and the flat forceps for picking up and manipulating the needle or reloading the needle on their needle driver.
10: Error three, improperly grasping the suture needle.
15: So let's talk about grasping the suture needle. I think a lot of people beginning out grasp that suture needle improperly, and that kind of sets you up for failure. So grasping the needle correctly with the needle driver is going to allow optimal control so you can get that proper throw. And new learners will sometimes use the needle driver to grasp the needle at its midway point, basically like the body of the suture halfway, and sometimes at an oblique angle which is just going to set them up for difficulty when placing the suture. So I like to demonstrate that a needle driver should grasp the needle two-thirds of the way back from the needle tip towards the swaged end, the swaged end being the end that's actually anchored to the suture, And that needle is best grasped at a 90-degree angle.
4: That terminology may not be very familiar to everyone, so let's take a minute to talk about the anatomy of a suture needle. And we have a photo of this that's labeled that you can look at. So a suture needle has three parts. The point, obviously the pointy end. The body, which is the middle. And the swaged end. That's the end where your suture thread connects into. When you grasp the needle with your needle driver, you want it to be closer to the swaged end than the point.
10: Error four, driving the needle at the wrong angle.
15: Intuitively, a new learner is going to take a curved needle and look at it, and they're gonna want to suture towards the center of a wound, rather than driving it down at a 90 degree angle perpendicular to the skin when they're placing a simple interrupted suture. This makes intuitive sense to someone who's trying to bring a wound together, but it's improper technique that really should be corrected early on. And it's strongly tied to point number three. If you don't grasp the needle right at 90 degrees to the needle driver, then you can't drive it in at 90 degrees without contorting yourself in all these weird positions. I like to explain to learners that if you don't drive the needle down into the tissue, it's gonna end up resulting in too shallow of a course through the tissue. And this can unintentionally invert the margins of a wound, which is an undesired effect Because small valleys and dimples and wounds really capture shadows and they can make a scar appear more prominent. Conversely, an everted wound, which is achieved with that 90-degree perpendicular throw, will deflect shadows and result in a less noticeable scar, especially as that wound contracts over time and becomes planar. Highlight the curved shape of the needle and how it's designed to traverse the wound at just the right depth, provided it's placed at the correct angle when you're working with a new learner.
4: And provided that you've chosen the right suture because sometimes they come with larger needles and sometimes they come with smaller needles.
15: That's a great point. And one thing that I always like to also point out is if you look at the suture packaging, there's actually a drawing of the exact needle and its shape and size on the packaging. So you can begin without any doubt about what you're starting with.
4: I think of when I see people kind of skimming across a wound, I think about we're not skipping rocks here. You got to enter at 90 degrees. And the other tip that I will throw in is that when you hold the needle driver in your hand, the tendency is to put your thumb through one of the holes and your ring finger through the other hole. And I would say take your ring finger out of the hole and and hold it in actually the palm of your hand because that allows you to really rotate your hand, including at the wrist. And so it really allows you to follow that natural curvature of the suture needle.
15: That's a really great point. That's what they often refer to as the surgeon's grip of the needle driver. The other thing that can be really helpful, because it can feel harder to control when you're doing it that way, is to take your pointer finger and make sure it's kind of sitting right there at like the uh, proximal end of the instrument, and that's going to help you to reachieve that control uh, and have balance to the instrument.
4: Summary. Let's do a quick recap of what we covered so far. First was choosing the wrong suture for the task. Remember, choose absorbable for buried sutures. Non-absorbable are good for epidermal closure or certain types of absorbable materials that have been specially designed for epidermal closure are fine as well. Second, handling the needle with your fingers. Don't do it. You're going to stab yourself. Third, grasping the suture needle improperly. Remember that the needle driver should grasp the needle about two-thirds of the way back from the point. Fourth, driving the needle at the wrong angle. The needle should enter the skin at a 90 degree angle and then use the rotation of your wrist to drive the needle down towards the wound. Fifth, moving the suture instead of the instrument. When tying a knot, manipulate the needle driver around the suture thread, it's a nice small motion, rather than manipulating the suture thread around the needle driver, like a cowboy with a lasso. Yahoo! So let's pause there, and when we come back in part two, we'll talk about the next six common suturing errors.
7: I want you to get up right
11: now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell Rick's
10: Rats.
12: Hey, it's Rick. we kinda time for a rant, but it's not really going to be a rant because I have a special guest that we're going to be interviewing today. So let me introduce you to Tom Mayer. Tom, welcome. You're in a hotel room in New York. I appreciate your taking the time to be with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Rick, for having me on. It's uh, It's really an honor. You are now the medical director for the National Football League's Players Association. How did you go from being an ER doc to uh, what you're doing now?
16: You know, file this under you and I both have people all the time ask us, how do we build my resume? What do I need to do next? And my answer and your answer have always been the same. It's not about resumes. It's about reputations. So to illustrate that, in uh, 2001, August 1st, 2001, Corey Stringer, who was a tackle for the Vikings, offensive tackle, inconceivably died of heat stroke in, at an NFL practice, which mm. is, was incredible then and incredible now. And the way I got the job is that my best friend called me and said, you need to step up and do this job for us. And my best friend was Gene Upshaw, famous left guard for the Raiders, probably the most famous left guard in history and a Hall of Famer himself. So it wasn't that I was obviously intelligent or good looking or or particularly skilled. It was because he trusted me and that's how I got the job. And I've had the job ever since. I'm the first and only medical director for him, which has been a a real blast. I mean, 2,500 players, their families, their wives, their kids. So I always say I'm the only emergency physician I know that has 10,000 patients and, and it's been a joy the whole way
12: with an average weight of probably 340 pounds. In the- <laughs> yes. Anyway, let's get to our topic at hand today. We were talking about something else offline uh, probably a month ago, and I don't know how one thing got to the other, but we got to talking about your interest in dealing with this burnout issue, which is really, really a major issue in emergency medicine now. And you said that you had written a book, and then you sent me this book, and I have reviewed this book, and this book is extraordinary. It's a textbook in that it has, it has an index, and it has tons and tons of references. So it's not just stuff coming out of your head. you compiled this thing of expert opinions and your own interactions, and you've, there's a case histories in here and stories about people who have you know suffered with this problem. And I saw a Medscape survey was published in January of this year. And it said that 60% of emergency physicians feel that they're burned out. The year ago, we were fourth. Today, we're number one. And, you know, I would have intuited that of all the physicians, that we would be number one. But it's 60% of our colleagues are saying they've got this challenge. And you're addressing it head on in this terrific book. And so what I'd really like to talk about today and let you run with the ball here is What can we do about this problem? We have to resolve it because we're talking about physicians and and others who have you know, they have thirty five year careers in this and some of their careers are being nipped in the bud because of this problem, or they're they're working but they're unhappy and in the process of being unhappy, their patients sense they're unhappy and you know, they're not you know, they're not giving the extra mild to you know do the things that for patients that they're supposed to in terms of you know holding of the hand and saying the kind word because it's they don't have the energy themselves to do that. So can you take this down this road a bit? So yes 60% is the new number. It was as
16: high as 50% before. And I always say we're winning a race that we wish we weren't even in. Finishing first in this race is not something that we they want to be and do. Second what Medscape didn't talk about is a study that my colleague, Tate Shanafelt, previously at Mayo, now at Stanford, Tate and I write some more together, did, which showed clearly that the most resilient physicians are nonetheless those that burn out most frequently. So if you think about that, it's almost counterintuitive. And the most resilient physicians are emergency physicians, not because I say so, not because you say so, although everyone who's listening would say so. But that's well-documented in the the literature. To your point of what can we do about it? First of all, I think that definitions drive solutions. Any definition that doesn't help you and I and everyone who's listening to this understand, okay, I got the problem and I have something to do about it. That's the way we are as emergency physicians. We're pragmatic, we're practical. Same for nurses, same for uh, APPs of any type. Anybody who's involved in this aspect of of high-octane Healthcare. So my definition, what concerned me was there were good definitions, but they weren't driving solutions. And so the definition that I used in the book was that burnout is simply a ratio of job stressors divided by adaptive capacity or resiliency. And I'll come to that in a minute. But adaptive capacity and resiliency are really the same thing, and that that ratio, the mismatch of ratio of job stressors and adaptive capacity or resiliency is what drives what my friend Christina Maslach described as the three cardinal symptoms which are emotional exhaustion depersonalization or cynicism and a lack of meaning at work a sense does it make any difference what difference does it make what i do so with that what i hope is a succinct definition you say well what do we do about it well the answer is you decrease job stressors to the extent possible or you increase adaptive capacity. Now to me again adaptive capacity and resiliency are the same thing the problem with the term resiliency and it's not a problem for me but it is a problem for some people hear that and they think oh well, you want me to meditate and you know I'm going to be <laughs> contemplating my navel and kumbaya and don't you get it it's not my problem it's the system's problem and i get that but that's why i call it adaptive capacity so All the solutions are driven around how do we reduce job stressors or increase adaptive capacity? Okay, how do you do that? How do you decrease job stressors and increase adaptive capacity? And the answer is that in my view, and I think others have come to this conclusion as well, is the contributing factors are a combination of culture that the organizations in which we work and I don't do a lot of traveling around to hospitals, but I talk to a lot of them. And I'll ask them, what's your culture? How's your culture? Oh, my, our culture's amazing. It's incredible. Look at this. Isn't this great? Look at these, you know, words on the walls here. And then I'll say, well, if your culture is so great, why are you burning out 60% of your people? There's some kind of mismatch here. So that's number one, a culture of fulfillment and ability to dedicate our jobs towards them. Number two, what I call hardwiring flow. What does hardware and flow mean? It means stop doing stupid stuff and start doing smart stuff, which is fundamentally a way of saying, let's stop with the job stressors that are driving us crazy and start doing smart stuff. And that means change the systems and processes in which we work that are driving us so crazy. And I need only say EHR or EMR, depending upon how you like that term, and say, well, that's driven us about half nuts. So those two pieces, culture, and hardwiring flow, the systems and processes in which we work, are organizational resiliency. There's also personal resilience. And that's the part where we can, and with the help of our systems, be able to reinvest in ourselves. And that is then crosswalked to the what the so-called six Maslach domains and solutions around each of those are how you get out of it. So if I had to summarize this 300-page book In 33 words, it would be this. One, every healthcare team member is a leader. Lead yourself, lead your team. Two, every healthcare team member is a performance athlete, no different than my NFL athletes, involved in a cycle of performance, rest, and recovery. Performance, rest, and recovery, and back we go to do it again. So the answer there is invest in yourself, invest in your team. Three, and number three, the work begins within. And the reason is while well, culture and hardwiring flow, systems and processes are two thirds of the equation, it's the personal third, the reinvestment in ourselves and those organizations reinvesting us, which will do the hard work of changing the culture and changing
12: the systems and processes in which we work. And I agree 100% that a lot of people work in sick departments. And when you work in a sick department, you become sick. And yes, your re- resilience is a measure of how long and how well you tolerate the sickness. And fixing these departments is really a good part of it. I know a friend, Al Saketti, who you may have heard of. Great man. He's worked in the same emergency department for probably at least 30 years. And when he tells that this is a wonderful department in terms of they, they do things on the outside, they go bowling together, they did a fundraiser for... Uh, some process where they were all riding their bicycles to Atlantic City from uh, where he lived in New Jersey. And it was so that these people were genuinely friends. It was a nice place to get. And it was clear that he had a really nice department in which people had each other's back and they were friends. And I don't know that you can accomplish that in all the departments, but I do think that, you know, to the extent that your department is screwed up and you've got, you're holding lots of patients and the people in the waiting room are there for too long. And they come in with a chip on their shoulder, which then again, you know, doesn't help you any. All of those kinds of things you shouldn't have to deal with. You know, one of the things that happens in emergency medicine is people pay concierge level fees and generally don't get concierge level care in terms of, you know, the throughput and the things that, really are top-down processes where the if the CEO wants it, you know, I really think everybody's, every CEO should have their bonus based on some of the metrics in the emergency department.
16: No question about it. And there's no, you and I've talked about this many times, have your CEO, but also the chairman of the board round through the emergency department, but not at two o'clock in the afternoon, two o'clock in the morning, to see what it's really like and what melana smells like and what vomit smells like and help them understand when our board chairman did that, I turned to him and I said, let me just tell you, nobody in this emergency department, the patients ever said, oh, it's a beautiful night. Let's go to the emergency department. You know, something disrupted their day. The reason they all come in at the same time is the doctor's office closes at the same time or they've nursed their symptoms all day or their child's symptoms all day. And finally, realize this is not going to get better. Let's go to the emergency department. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a brilliant solution. And and tying their bonuses to that, I'll give you a simple idea that we talk about when it comes to boarding, and that is to do the same with the CEO. Have them come down and personally meet the boarders, not the people who are doing the boarding. Hospital boarders. They're not emergency department boarders. They're hospital boarders because it's a hospital problem. But simply have the nursing supervisor. Make it clear that if there is a, anybody who waits more than an hour for a bed, comes down, personally greets that boarder, shakes their hand and said, I'm running this hospital. I'm going to find you a bed. We did that at Fairfax and Nova Fairfax. And you know what was funny? They started finding beds. They started cleaning beds faster.
12: Oh, absolutely. I've had the same experience.
16: Yeah. And that goes to the hardwiring flow piece of stop doing stupid stuff. Quick example. When do discharges typically occur? They occur in the afternoon. If I'm a floor nurse and I get off at three o'clock and a patient's discharged from that bed at two o'clock in the afternoon, what's my driver? What's my impetus? What's my reward for putting that bed back in service fast enough that I can get another new patient before I leave at Mm three, right? And I'm not casting aspersions on our wonderful colleagues in nursing. I'm just saying that the system is screwed up. So stop doing stupid stuff and start rewarding them, just as we should stop paying travelers and start paying our own nurses what we're going to end up paying to the travelers if we don't
12: pay them the way they should be paid. I think that what this pandemic did is show how delicate a thread is holding our system together here. And I'm extraordinarily proud, and I hope the nation is proud of the fact that the emergency physicians, nurses, and all those who work in the department's stepped up to the plate. We didn't we didn't sign on for this thing, but we it was handed it to us and our colleagues around with the ball and um I think they did an extraordinary job. Unfortunately, I think there were some casualties. And those casualties are clinicians who don't like being doctors anymore or are looking for other things to do or starting ketamine clinics because it was just too hard and too stressful and too they were seeing people dying in the department at a rate they've never seen that before. It was like it, they just got overloaded, I think.
16: One of the things I talk about in the book when it comes to this sense of a teamwork, uh, loss of community is what Dr. Maslach calls it, and, and that sense of, of values that go with it, simply, and it's silly, but say thank you 50 times a day. Say thank you to the patient when you first greet them. Say thank you when they leave. Say thank you to the nurse in front of the patient for the great care that the nurse is giving. And certainly at the end of the shift, say thank you to all the nurses and say, "What could I have done to make your job easier today? You know, it does a lot of things. First of all, it creates a culture for that shift when that emergency department, for the time you were there And, and how do people create culture day by day by day, action by action by action word by word by word, thanks by thanks by thanks. And second of all, it makes it so much easier for them. I mean, you can work with Nurse Ratchet. And if you're thanking them profusely, it just, you know, thanks begat thanks as the Old Testament chapters begin with the begat, so, so and so begat, begat, begat. And the next thing you know, everybody's saying thanks, including the patient at the end. Any any parting words? Listen to everybody out there. I mean, I can I could close this in a lot of different ways, but one of the things I, I talk about in the book, and I always use in the talks that I give, is a picture of George Washington Carver. You know, this extraordinarily wise African American man before his time. What that great man said is, "How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant." of the weak and strong, because someday in your life, you will have been all of those things. And my point is, every person listening to this, every day in your life, when you go to that emergency department, you see all of those things, you help all of those things, and you heal all of those people. So the understanding the legacy we leave, It's worth the effort. It's worth handling organizational resiliency, both culture and systems and processes, but reinvesting in ourselves as well. So my hope is that something I have said, done, can be helpful. And I encourage people to reach out anytime via email or through you or however, to to help build a community of people who are working together to solve burnout by sharing their problems and their solutions.
12: Yeah, your email, I mean, you put it all over the place. You don't have uh, any hidden email. You go directly to Tom Mayer, at, T-H-O-M, Mayor M-D, at gmail.com, I believe. Yep, yeah, that's simple.
16: And I, you know what?
12: I don't have a website. I got
16: nothing to sell anybody. But I, right. hope I need something to give uh, all of you. And I, I'm not on social media. You don't have to like me, but I hope you like something that Rick and I
12: have talked about together today. All right, guys. That is... I wouldn't call this a rant at all. I would call this more like a conversation. Thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. My pleasure entirely, Rick. Anytime. Thank you.
16: Rick's
6: Conversations.
4: So I'm here with Jason Woods.
9: Jason Woods!
4: He's an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and Children's Hospital of Colorado. And Jason, I called upon you because this question has been on my mind a lot lately. As the world is frankly obsessed with measuring temperatures because of COVID, I really started thinking about how do we measure temperatures and really how poorly we measure temperatures. What is the meaning of measuring temperatures? And my mind immediately went to, I don't know, have you seen the movie Idiocracy? I have. So my mind immediately went to a scene from Idiocracy where he transports into the future. Luke Wilson's character transports to the year 2505. Where am I? Shut up! And he's checking in to a hospital and he's asked to put three probes into himself.
1: This goes in your mouth. This one goes in your ear. And this one goes in your butt.
4: And then the probes give him the errr sign. Uh Uh-oh, you did something wrong. They all fall to the ground, and the hospital technician jumbles them all up as Luke Uh. Wilson is staring at this, like frantically trying to track which probe was in his butt and which one was in his mouth. And then the guy says,
5: This one. This one goes in your mouth.
4: Okay, actually it's this one in your mouth and this one in your butt. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember this scene?
0: I do and I I did not expect this to be the genesis of our conversation today. Well,
4: this is what I think about. Every time I think about measuring temperature, right? Do you which one in your ear, your mouth or your butt does it matter? And let's please not mix these up. Let's get this right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and I mean, you know, in pediatrics that's like literally all we care about. I just I need to wait and a temperature and then you're you're off and running.
4: <laughs> yeah, there we go. So actually I, I I wanted to chat with you about this because It does come up so frequently in pediatrics, especially with these infrared thermometers, which everyone is obsessed with right now. You have to get your temperature checked by infrared thermometer to get into daycare, to get into the hospital. And so I wanted to chat with you about measuring temperatures and sort of how we do it and why we do it. So thank you for agreeing to talk to me about that.
0: Absolutely. Although this one was a little bit embarrassing for me because I started to think about what I was gonna say, and I realized I didn't know
4: nearly enough either. Well, and that's fine because it's one of those subjects that we all kind of know the answer here, right? We all kind of know that a lot of these are bogus, but what is the data to support why these are bogus and just how bad are they? But first, I think we should talk about the bigger picture here, right? And you brought this up. What is a normal temperature? What's a fever? Does this actually even matter? Like, does that half a degree difference really matter in how we define fever and measuring temperature.
0: Yeah, and after spending a huge number of hours putting together a lengthy show outline, I think the answer in the end is, I'm still not sure.
6: Not sure. Is this correct? Not sure. No, it's not
8: correct. (laughs) Thank you.
0: The normal temperature thing sent me way down a rabbit hole of, you know, why do we still use the same numbers that were developed by this? guy whose name was Wunderlich in the 1800s with mercury thermometers that were all done rectally. And Is that still really applicable today? And how did we come up with 38 as the cutoff? Since we do know that people's temperature vary from day to evening and from person to person. And so should it instead, rather than being these absolute numbers, be more of a like I don't know your temperature fingerprint, and it's it's different for you almost like the you know the adolescent blood pressure charts that if you really want to know what's too high uh, or not, you've got to go look them up by their gender and their height, and nobody's going to do that for temperature. But you know, I guess we're still using thirty-seven Celsius, although an awful lot of the papers dig into is that the number we should use and what's the actual cutoff. So I, don't know, I think for this discussion, we're we're still going to land on thirty-seven Celsius as our normal and and thirty-eight as a fever, but. I can't tell you how accurate that piece is.
4: Yeah, I agree with you. And it also makes me think of that parent who comes into the ER with their kid who tells you that their child was running a, quote unquote, low grade temperature or a low grade fever. And a lot of people are going to roll their eyes at that. Like, there's no such thing as a low grade fever. A fever is 38 or 100.4 Fahrenheit. Done. Done. End of story, no such thing as a low grade temperature. It is a binary answer. And like, that's just not true, right? There's none of this is binary.
8: Yeah.
0: I am the attending that picks on the trainees whenever they tell me low grade fever, only because I ask them to define it and then tell me why they care. And it's more because I get bothered when people presume that a lower temperature means there's no danger and a higher temperature suddenly means there's something terrible going on, neither of which are true.
4: Exactly. Shut up! Okay, so that's sort of the big picture that we need to keep in mind as we're having this discussion. And now let's talk about the many ways that temperature can be measured in a human. And I think that probably the ideal way to get the most accurate temperature at a human is to take a thermometer, sharpen it, and shove it in someone's spleen, right? That's probably pretty accurate. Leave it there for like five minutes. That's going to be a core temperature, right? Is that what we mean when we say core temp? What's a core temp?
0: You know, I think that is probably going to lose us both of our jobs, but it would probably be really accurate. So I went into this presuming that our gold standard was always going to be a rectal temperature. But then thinking about it more, like that's not exactly central either, although it's close. Some of the studies that we're going to talk about Use pulmonary artery pressures or esophageal probes to sort of get as close to the center of the body as possible, since we can't do the sharpened spleen stab.
4: Well, that would really slow down triage if they're like, come here, let's drop this down your esophagus and get a quick uh, esophageal <laughs>
0: temp. Everybody needs a pulmonary artery catheter.
4: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, what is what is the gold standard?
0: So, truly, if you had all of the options available, it does seem like something floated pretty close to the heart would be the gold standard but it's not it's not a realistic gold standard so apart from those more invasive measures that would require some sort of central line or esophageal probe i think we're going to go with rectal and that's what an awful lot of these are are compared to
4: okay so when we say core temperature we want a true core temperature unless that patient has some sort of invasive line or Foley catheter in place we're generally talking about a rectal temperature and i think the literature is generally in agreement on that but i did look at some of these papers that you've cited here and some of them have really weak sauce for their comparators. Like for example, one study compared an infrared thermometer to an axillary temperature, which is kind of which garbage. Which also crap. Right, well, I don't know what to do with that except crumple it up and throw it in the garbage. Okay, so we're gonna go with rectal temp as our core temperature that's generally achievable if we really want a core temperature in a patient. Right. But there's so many other ways to measure temperature. Let's talk about some of the other common ones. So oral temp.
0: This one.
5: This one goes in your mouth.
4: Super common. What, how good is that? How bad is that?
0: In the most scientifically correct way that I can state it, they're okay. They are better, the oral temps, than many of the other methods that we use. And in particular, they've been compared to axillary a lot. And they are far more accurate temperatures measured orally. When I say accurate, I'm both meaning how well do they compare to whatever your reference standard is? And is it repeatable if you take the temperature over and over again, which I, I guess technically would be precision, but it's all kind of wrapped in there together.
4: Right. And with oral temps, there, there's like the obsession with under the tongue. It must be under the tongue. I've thought about this. I don't know if you know the answer to it. I have a reason in my mind of why under the tongue is better than above the tongue, which it really, can you get a kid to follow that direction? I don't think Not
0: so. Not one bit. I don't uh, think so. I guess under the tongue probably is a little bit better. It's buried. More in the soft tissue, more vasculature around it, and you don't have breath coming over top of it quite as much. So like, it makes sense to me. I could not find anybody that had actually evaluated
4: that. Yeah. (laughs) And I I don't think my two-year-old could follow that instruction.
0: (laughs) I mean, you know, maybe, uh, hopefully my mom and dad aren't listening here, but, you know, oral temperatures are also relatively easy to fake, especially if, you know, if your parents aren't looking, you just kind of hold it up near a light bulb and drive that temperature up (laughs) and you don't have to go to school.
4: (laughs) kids do not listen to this. If you're listening yeah, with no, your children, you should turn this off right now. Okay.
0: This is not pediatrician recommended
4: <laughs> strategy. All right, so that's a oral temperatures.
13: Electronic thermometers.
4: Did you find anything about cuz some of these uh, thermometers are electronic and some are mercury. I actually I'd be surprised if there was many mercury thermometers in hospitals today, but I certainly had one growing up. That's how we that's just what we used.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny to watch the progression of what the considered reference standard is because a lot of them started with mercury. There's a whole host of papers when electronic thermometers started to come out about how accurate they were. And then just as technology's gotten better, the presumption is that the electronic temperature measurement is the way to go. And depending on the device you have, I guess they'll be more or less accurate. But I think we are in the world of only electronic. Thermometers. I I can't imagine a hospital pulling out a mercury thermometer. (laughs)
4: Yeah, I know. But my mom would definitely, for sure.
0: (laughs) I always felt like those things were really big, too, and they look scary.
4: Yeah, yeah. I feel like they're probably the standard, right? Like, watch the mercury rise. It's kind of fun to do that.
0: Put it in your armpit. Come
6: on.
4: What about an axillary temperature? How bad is that?
0: I can state definitively that it's terrible and should never be used it is neither repeatable with any sort of consistency, nor does it match with any sort of core temperature that it was compared to. I don't know if you had one of your parents or somebody else tell you, well, you just measure it and then you like add a degree because it will be <laughs> a little bit cold. Like that's not, there's no, there's no specific temperature correction that suddenly makes axillary correct. And yeah, so it's a waste of everybody's time.
4: I feel like the good old-fashioned mom hand is better than axillary. I, I'm actually very certain of that because I've developed mom hands in the last few years, and yeah. I am pretty good at detecting a <laughs> fever. And I, I haven't tried sticking my mom hand in anyone's axilla to you know cross-reference this, but I'm pretty certain that mom hand is, is better than axillary.
0: It's funny. This has been looked at, and parental reports of fever, particularly moms, are actually pretty good. I know they're quite they're quite <laughs> specific. They're not as sensitive as you'd like them to be, but like they're right more often than not.
4: Oh yeah, oh yeah. I know it. I know it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this one goes in your ear.
4: Okay, so a few years ago, the big thing were these temporal artery thermometers, and then tympanic became very popular. How good or how bad are these two devices?
0: This is a really hard one to find an answer on because I could not find studies that agreed with each other. There are a bunch of papers on this and some of them reach a conclusion that the temporal thermometer can vary from core temperature by more than a degree Celsius and so you absolutely can't use it. And others with similar methods and similar numbers of patients said, nah, these actually match pretty closely down to, as you know, less than uh, 0.3 degree Celsius difference. Um, I could not find any like, one place that was able to fully evaluate all of that data out there in a a way that it wasn't too heterogeneous and give us the answer.
4: Yeah. And one study that I looked at on temporal artery thermometers said that they could be off by as many as five degrees. No big deal, just five degrees.
0: I mean, that's the difference between like alive and
17: dead.
4: (laughs) It can be, it can be. So, but we kind of know in general that these can really be flawed but the question that keeps coming up in my mind is okay they might be flawed but regardless of what you use if it's telling you that the temperature is 39 celsius that's hot how likely is that so, right they might not be very sensitive but are they specific if they register a fever like isn't that fairly good for saying yeah you probably actually do have a fever
0: I think so, based on looking at the data now. And I did not do a a comprehensive multi-month search on this, but the majority of the papers seem to agree that for diagnosing a fever are relatively specific and maybe not as sensitive as you would like. And that applies for both the temporal and tympanic infrared thermometers.
12: Light we can't see.
4: Now, finally, and this is the reason that I really wanted to talk about this in the first place, is the infrareds. These uh, little infrared guns, you know, like the Predator. The Predator is probably better at taking a human temperature. (laughs) If we all had Predator vision, I think that this would work out better for us. But essentially, that's infrared technology, right? So how bad is that?
0: You said Predator, and in my slightly uncaffeinated brain, I very briefly thought that somebody had named one of the temperature guns, the Predator, and I was really concerned about the, like, marketing of that. And then I realized you're talking about the really fantastic movie, which is also an equally good reference. Yeah, accepting finding some sort of really accurate infrared alien technology, the infrared thermometers that look at the forehead seem to be, when used appropriately, roughly equivalent to either temporal or tympanic thermometers. They use similar technology. The issue with the gun-looking ones is that they are highly prone to technical error, if there is extra material in the way, if you don't wait long enough after somebody has walked in from outside, which, you know, you're doing it at the door and so you're going to get a lot of environmental effects. If you don't actually hold it still long enough at a single point and it's moving, all of those things make it pretty hard to use in the real world context reliably.
4: At an ER I recently worked at during the peak of COVID in the summer, it's so over 100 degrees outside, and you needed a temperature check to get into the building. And so, you know, it's 110 degrees, just a short walk, 10 steps, you're sweating. It's very hot. They check your temperature, and very commonly, not a big surprise here, you had a fever. Oh, my goodness. So, so what did you do? You stood in front of the fan <laughs> for a couple minutes, and they recheck your temperature. It's very scientific. the system. No, no, no. This, is, this was what we were told to do. It was based on science. And then we could work our shift.
0: Oh, excellent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good uh, way to clear yourself. So that it f- feels silly to me. Why are we doing that? If yeah. if the response to getting an abnormal result is like, I don't know, we be- well, I don't believe it. Stand in front of a fan for a little bit and let's repeat it.
4: I know. At least they weren't making you then get a rectal temperature. I would take the fan any day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> get- Can you imagine if that was hospital policy? Like, I'm sorry, you got to step behind this screen next. You failed your initial.
4: (laughs) This one goes in your mouth. This one goes in your (laughs) ear. And this one goes in your butt. And here's a nasal swab
0: while we're at it. We're just going to do everything. Summary.
4: All right. So this has been fun to talk about and really kind of highlight sort of the idiocracy of a lot of this by the way, you've done a beautiful review of the literature and and it'll be posted here. If anyone wants to take a deeper dive into this and look up some of the references that you've put together. But if you really care about getting a true temperature in a patient, if that really matters, then you probably want a core temperature and a rectal temperature is the most realistic way of getting that. If you check an oral temp and it's high, it's probably truly a fever, or at least an elevated temperature. I don't wanna say that all elevated temperatures are fevers. We know that that's not true, obviously. But is that an accurate summary, Jason?
0: I think that is, and can I put a question back to you? Yes. How often do we actually really have situations where knowing the exact temperature matters, like actually matters for our clinical decision-making or the outcome of the patient?
4: Yeah, I know that's, that's really the bigger question. And I think it matters for a lot of data points that get measured, you know, when we're talking about sepsis protocols and about ticking the right boxes and bean counting, right? It matters a lot in those circumstances. What was the temperature? Was it a fever or not a fever? That's when these things, quote unquote, matter, right? But sometimes diagnostically, it's helpful. So sometimes I think it matters, but a lot of the time that is the bigger question. Does it really matter? And does the exact number matter?
0: Yeah, no, I don't. I don't want anybody leaving this being like, Woods just said that temperatures don't matter at all." Because like, I care. Febrile neonates, neutropenic right. patients. So right. sometimes it does, but a lot of times I don't really care. I sometimes I call this a little bit of medical theater. Like I ask families exactly what temperatures they're measuring at home a lot, partly because I think they expect me to care, but like I generally don't. If they think their kid was hot, they probably were.
4: Yeah. Well, this has been fun. Thanks so much for uh, bringing all of this to light. It was a really hot topic.
0: (laughs) Fantastic way to end it. Thanks for having
18: me. that's good. You sure you ain't the smartest guy in the world?
7: Yeah. Before we wrap up this piece, there's one more thing that we should get into, which is whether there's a difference between dark and light skin in terms of the accuracy of these temperature devices, specifically the temporal temperature device. And so we've got Alden Landry back in to dive into this topic.
13: There's often a question on whether or not Temporal thermometers are as useful on darker skin compared to lighter-skinned individuals. And I think this question is interesting because we just had this debate when it comes to pulse oximeters and their use. And one thing I would like to point out, and again, I'm not a physicist, and I certainly can't break down the details as to the technology that is being used, but just to point out, there is a difference in the way that these two devices work. And so... Temporal thermometers actually measure something called emissivity of human skin. And it's generally accepted that the emissivity of skin is about 0.98. Whether or not this value is consistent amongst different skin types is really not known. And so there was a study that came out in November of 2020 that looked at this. And what they did was they took a sample of about 65 individuals of varying pigmentations of their skin, and they calculated it based on the Fitzpatrick scale, which is something commonly used by dermatologists as sort of a way to look at different pigmentations in skin. And ultimately, what they found is that all the participants had very similar emissivity rates regardless of their Fitzpatrick scale type. And so I think what you can safely say here is that these temporal thermometers when they are measuring emissivity of the skin, are collecting about the same data for individuals who are lighter skin versus darker skin. And again, this differs from pulse oximeters because pulse oximeters are measuring a wavelength that passes through the skin. And so there may be some absorption of light that happens differently on darker skin individuals, therefore decreasing the amount of light that passes through and is being measured and the pulse ox measurements. So there is a difference in the tools and therefore the tools, because of the way that they are collecting data is different and what they're collecting is different, means that the quality of what you're getting from them is gonna be different because they're looking at two different things. Yeah, we're so
17: Welcome to ASEP Now and MRAP's World Travels.
8: Welcome back to our recurring series hosted by Cedric Dark on healthcare systems around the world. First, we went to New Zealand with Ryan Radecki, then, we went to the Netherlands with Terence Mulligan, and now we head to Africa to hear about Ethiopia's healthcare delivery system.
18: My name is Cedric Dark. I'm the ASEP Now Medical Editor-in-Chief, the Executive Editor of Policy Prescriptions and a board member for Doctors for America. And, you know, in my travels around the world, I've been to a lot of different places. One of my favorites is Barcelona. And when I was there last time back in 2019, I got to visit the Royal Academy of Medicine of Catalonia, I've been to places like Montpellier, France, and got to visit Europe's oldest medical school. It's called the Faculté de Médecine de Montpellier. Sorry for those of you that actually speak French. I don't, so I probably butchered that. I've been to Cuba, where you know they actually have doctors that live in communities, and been to a lot of places. But one place I've never been is Ethiopia. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Ethiopian healthcare system with Dr. Sion Ferou. She is an emergency physician and assistant professor of emergency medicine at Columbia University in New York City, and an advisor to the Ministry of Health for the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. So, Dr. Faroo, welcome.
19: Thank you, Cedric. Thank you for having me.
18: But I did want to give our listeners a little bit of information about Ethiopia. I didn't know a lot about it; had to look a few things up. It's the second largest country in Africa by population, 115 million people.
19: Yes. Also, as one of the poorest countries in Sub-Saharan African countries, the per capita income of of only eight hundred fifty dollars per year, which compares, of course, for the U.S. of sixty six thousand or so. So uh, it's considered a low middle income country and a low income country, and hoping to become a middle income country by the year twenty twenty five. Though it's been because of COVID nineteen pandemic, most of the progress when it comes to economic development has been hindered already, unfortunately.
18: Going back to 1978, I read that there was something called the Alma Ata Declaration for primary health care. So it sounds like there's been a focus in trying to get primary care at least universalized in Ethiopia.
19: Absolutely, and this has been the case for the past, especially 20, 30 years, to make primary care at the center of most of the discussions and the decision table when we see these acute emergencies in the primary care settings mostly are handled inappropriately by providers who are not able to address many emergencies. And the primary health care, especially in Ethiopia for the past, I would say, three decades, have been focused through delivering the care by community health care providers. And it's one of the things that the government invested in doing so for the past 20, 30 years.
18: Well, one other tidbit that was interesting to me is that when we talk about the split of the population across the country there, about 80% of the population's rural, only 20% is urban. And and that really leads to some disparities in care, because it sounds like that access to modern healthcare is really not that apparent in the rural areas. What can you tell me about that?
19: Over time, with urbanization, there are a lot of people moving to the cities, and we're seeing more and more young people migrate to the cities. And a lot of people that live in the urban areas, the 20% of the population, usually pays out of pocket for their health care, while 80% of the population that live in rural areas have those community health services and primary level hospitals that they have access to. Most of the health care is subsidized by the government through what we call the CBHI, which stands for the Community-Based Health Insurance. And people pay very low amount of money per year to participate in that. And the government subsidized for most of the care. But again, that's for basic preventative care. And it doesn't cover many sophisticated care like surgical care and other subspecialty cares.
18: And and if we're talking about the way the system is financed, this goes back to what we've been exploring in the past couple episodes. You know, we have systems like the National Health System, which we saw in New Zealand with uh, Dr. Ryan Radecki. We have systems like National Health Insurance that can be universalized in places like Australia. And we'll we'll talk to Justin Hensley about that and his experience working there. And then you have compulsory systems where it's a private insurance marketplace set up as in the Netherlands when we talked to Dr. Terence Mulligan. But Ethiopia would kind of fit into a categorization that's somewhat termed a voluntary healthcare system because it's like if you want access to care, you have to find a way to fund it on your own or have it covered some other way. And when it comes to, as you were saying, the healthcare financing, about forty six percent from from some of the sources I've read are talking about donations, either from NGOs. A large portion is coming from government funding, but a, a huge burden over one third of costs are out of pocket costs by individual patients at the point of service, and, and that can create some difficulties in accessing care. Let's talk a little bit about you know what it's like actually on the ground there, if we can and kind of compare that to what happens in the United States. So, one of the major perceived issues in the US with our system is long waits to get things like elective procedures. So, how would you say that happens in Ethiopia as well?
19: So, yeah, I think you mentioned really great points about the healthcare financing, which is a big challenge and, you know, most of the countries that you mentioned are high-income countries which most of them are able to self-support and sustain the healthcare system that they have, but Unfortunately, in most places in sub-Saharan African countries, it's donor-dependent. And there are these vertical programs that are trying to address like infectious diseases like TB, HIV, malaria, and now also maternal health care delivery. And I would say especially in, oh, when you look at, at the ground level, I've had the privilege of working there and volunteering at different hospitals in Ethiopia. And actually, one of my first experience working there as a senior resident was at a hospital called Black Lion Hospital. at a Specialized Hospital, which is in the capital city. And it's also the hospital that I was born at. And there were people that were being referred from all over the country because it's the only hospital that have all the subspecialty surgical programs. And there are people that have waited for years for elective surgeries. And unfortunately for 80% of the population, that's the reality. For other people that live in in the urban areas, people are willing to pay out of pocket. There are private hospitals and there are also private groups that you can pay out of pocket and be able to get that surgical care immediately. Especially if it is an emergent procedure, most hospitals are able to accommodate that. And sometimes people who could really afford to do so, some people do go out of the country to get this procedure, especially if they feel like, you know, the such specialty services are not available. You'll see that many people and especially in the urban areas, they will wait them especially for like, you know, knee replacements or hip replacements, those kind of specialty orthopedics procedures. They might wait two, three months if they're paying out of pocket because in addition to the cell specialty services, it's the materials because you're waiting for it to get imported from out of the country. So certain medical instruments may not be available right away. So some people, even if they're willing to pay, because that depends on the availability of the materials, it might take several months. So unfortunately, it's the have and the have-nots. And the people that have the access to health care money, will be able to get immediately. But for some people to get elective surgery, it might be months up to years.
18: What about things that are hopefully a little less expensive, just medications as opposed to actual surgical procedures? Let's just take hypertension, for example. Is there a large selection of medications? Are are these covered under that primary care system that, that you were talking about? Or is it similar where people have to you know come out of pocket and to be able to afford those sorts of medications
19: Some medications are available widely and they're also subsidized for you by the CBHI program especially for people in the rural areas They're restricted in a way there might be for example five medications that are available for a specific disease like hypertension for example and if you want to buy other medications outside of that or if your doctor recommends other medications outside of those five medications you most likely will have to pay out of pocket. The other thing is also, again, going back to availability, a lot of medications are imported from other parts of the world. Also overseeing in most places in sub-Saharan Africa, there's a lot of issues with counterfeit medications where people are paying for, you know, medications that are counterfeit and they're taking them and you don't see any results and you're just paying and paying and nothing is happening to you know your blood pressure, or to your diabetes, and other things, and especially in the urban settings, people that can afford to pay out of pocket, they do pay for medications imported from European countries. A lot of the medications that people receive in Ethiopia are from India and Egypt. There, are some medications are produced locally, some antibiotics. Those are easily accessible and subsidized by the government, especially for people that live in rural areas. But it's very restrictive. Now, even for people that have the money to do so, kind of goes back to the medical equipment and instruments that I was talking about earlier. They might have to wait several months to get those medications because they're not available widely. And one thing that we saw during COVID, especially with the shutdowns and people closing their borders, especially when India was suffering from the peak of the pandemic, they stopped exporting most of their medications. There was a lot of shortages that we witnessed all over the country.
18: You know, as an emergency physician, you know, we're used to seeing some challenges for our patients, you know, getting primary care follow-up, accessing medications, access to specialists. What are the biggest challenges for, you know, physicians that are working in that setting in Ethiopia?
19: So going back to what you mentioned earlier, emergency medicine, you know, in the US has been now around for several decades, but in Ethiopia and other sub-Saharan African countries, it's sort of in its infancy. Ethiopia is actually the third country in Africa that established their residency program. Initially, you know, the challenges like it was here about forty, fifty years ago. It's about getting the emergency care program or the residency program recognized by the institution. By the country, which kind of is where I started my journey, was with medical education, supporting the residents and the medical students and with their emergency residency program. But over time, you know, seeing the challenges that they were facing were at a policy level. So the challenges there are, of course, what we see here having access to, you know, beds, the overcrowding, everything that you see here, we see there too. And also the challenge here that they had 40, 50 years ago when establishing emergency care getting their recognition from other services. You're either seen as the the internal medicine program or a surgical program, but no, this is its own specialty. In addition to the crowding that we see there and also similar here, there are a lot of people who are not able to afford the care that they need, especially when people that come from the rural areas. And my experience has been mostly working in this city hospitals where they get a lot of referrals from outside of the city. There's a long wait for procedures and also for patients to get bed. Some things that the governments do not have access to, like MRIs, they're not available in this public hospital, so people would have to pay out of pocket to go get this MRIs outside. And it's very different for me. When, I remember when I went rounding there, when you ask people, hey, you know, I want to give this antibiotics, like subtracts onto this person, and you write it and you could put the order in. The patient's family member has to go buy the medication from a pharmacy, and then the nurses come and hang it. So that's how it usually works. And, uh, and, you know, of course, you can think of all the delay that it creates. The hospital has some stocks for emergencies, but mostly the family members has to go get the blood or has to go to the certain laboratories and get the special lab tests conducted. So a lot of the burden falls on the family members.
18: So like, there's blood just like a store with blood in it? Like, how does that work?
19: So you go to the blood bank and mostly, you know, the blood bank is able to provide those things for free. But some of the logistics and some of the procedures that the family has to kind of take the burden, unfortunately.
18: Gotcha. And if, if they don't have the funds for that, they just kind of go without it.
19: So there are ways like here, social services. There are social workers who can help you navigate it, mostly people that have access to it. They'll pay for it, but for people that don't have access to it, there are people who are there to help you navigate the system. And I've seen also that sometimes the doctors just, you know, pull some money together and also donate for a patient. So I've seen that a lot, actually, in Ethiopia, and also when I was working in Haiti, I've seen that some people just, hey, this family needs this for this family, and they can't afford to do so. And people just kind of putting money together to help a family member.
18: Dr. Sion Farou, thank you so much for joining us and teaching us a little bit about a part of the world that not a lot of our listeners probably have had a chance to visit.
19: And I think one thing that I should mention, a little bit of caveats for emergency care providers here who are addicted to coffee. Ethiopia is seen as the birthplace of coffee in an area called Kaffa. From the area called Kafa. So, every time you drink coffee, thank an Ethiopian for discovering that for you. And I think, I think if you ask people that have been to Ethiopia, the coffee ceremony is a big part of the Ethiopian culture. would welcome everybody to go there and visit the place. And there's a lot of historical aspects, too, in addition to what we'll be discussing here.
18: All right, well, that's a good thing to know. I'll have to admit, I, I didn't really drink coffee much until I went to Cuba and had their coffee. So, you're going to only make my coffee addiction worse if I wind up going to Ethiopia, it sounds like. <laughs>
5: Okay, it's time for the Ultra-Ultra Summary. Uh, This is for content that was on the May EMRAP. It goes like this. Abstract 2. Abstract 2 was a fantastic one. Risk of recurrent venous thromboembolism in patients with subsegmental pulmonary embolism managed without anticoagulation, a multicenter prospective study. So the idea here is we have been doing a lot more CTs and we've been finding more PEs, but maybe many of these PEs are not worthy of anticoagulation. So they did this multicenter study and they looked at these people And they said, actually, the recurrent rate of PE, if you don't anticoagulate everybody, is about 3%, which is higher than what they thought it was going to be. They thought it was going to be around 1%. And then they would say, if you can't find an obvious clot, and somebody's got a subsegmental PE and it's doing okay, you probably shouldn't anticoagulate. But that is not what they can say from this study. It's still not a very high rate. It's about the same as having a proximal DVT anticoagulated and still getting a clot of around 3%. But it's not the magic 1%. So if you find a PE, for now, one of these subsegmental puppies, you still have to anticoagulate. Abstract 3. Abstract 3, very important. Efficacy of topical amic acid, acid TXA in epistaxis, a systematic review, and meta-analysis. So first there was all of these studies that said TXA works for the bleeding of the nose. Then there was the NOPAC trial, which said, no, it doesn't. This meta-analysis says yes, it does. But you know what it does? It excludes that one big trial, so you have to listen to the whole show. But as uh, Sanjay goes through, it's like, you well, know, if you want to use this as a first-line therapy with a bit of uh, pinching of the nose instead of a topical uh, vasoconstrictor, that's fine. But the evidence is still a bit all over the place here, so it's uh, you know dealer's choice right now, and we certainly need more data to know when and how, or if to use TXA. Nosebleeds, but you know, sometimes it's working, sometimes it's not. It's kind of how you use it. To be continued.
2: Abstract five.
5: Abstract five was utilization of anti factor 10a levels to guide reversal of oral factor 10a inhibitors in the emergency department. And the point of this little case series was basically, in Sanjay's mind, to remind us that there is actually tests to work out if you are anticoagulated with one of these factor 10a things. So if you did that test, if you had that test and did that test, and that test came back zero, then you wouldn't have to use a very expensive reversal agent. If it's above zero, we don't know what to do with those numbers yet. But just know that they're in some departments. The ability to find out whether the people are actually taking these, that would be above zero. And so you might want to reverse those people. And maybe if it's zero, you don't. Uh, Maybe you can use it that way. Very speculative, but at least know that these uh, tests are available in some places. Abstract 6. Abstract 6 is a really good one. You know you got these patients. they come in with chest pain, and they're low enough for us to go home, and sometimes they're not low enough for us to go home, but they're pretty low risk. Uh, should you routinely send them for cardiac stress testing? Well, it used to be the answer to that was yes, and now the answer is probably not. So in this study, huge study, Kaiser, Northern California, over 200,000 patients, the basic summary was that sending patients as a routine to get cardiac stress testing resulted in more things being done to them and more caths, more bypasses and all that stuff, but no reduction in bad things happening to them. So a whole lot of people got stuff done that probably didn't need it done. Now, as they point out in the show, it's a very specific group of people. This is at a Kaiser, they've got good follow-up, they've got good primary care and that kind of stuff. But it's just another nail in the coffin of this idea that if you present to an immune spot with chest pain, you must have a cardiac stress test in a short time thereafter, or you're doing bad things. This suggests you should not do that as a routine. It's not good for you.
17: Abstract 8.
5: Abstract 8, very important. Effectiveness of phosphomycin for the treatment of multidrug-resistant E. coli, bacteremia, when you've got a urinary tract infection, a randomized clinical trial. And the summary is that the phosphomycin worked. But the problem with phosphomycin is it's got a pretty high sodium load, so in CHF patients it can be a little bit of a problem. This was not, let me repeat, this was not a study of oral agents. That would be nice to know as well. But this was IV for multi-drug resistant uh, E. coli in the whizzer. Then uh, you can use phosphomycin.
2: Abstract 10.
5: So abstract 10 is clinical failure in abscess treatment, the role of ultrasound and incision and drainage. So what it's supposed to say, what the authors say it says, is that you should use ultrasound because it will reduce the number of people who have to come back. With uh, you know a recurrent abscess or you miss some stuff, but Mike points out in a good discussion about how this is quite limited, and that in fact the best evidence we have right now is that most of the time you don't need ultrasound to look after these patients and have good outcomes. But this study, because of a particular bias in the outcome, meant that the people who sort of got into the study were more likely to have failed the IND process, and it sort of skews it. But you should know about this. But seen in the whole. The spectrum of stuff in ultrasound, although we love ultrasound. Ultrasound is fun. You don't have to have ultrasound to treat the vast majority of people with an abscess.
2: Abstract 11.
5: Abstract 11. Impact of utilization of 500ml bags of crystalloid resuscitation uh, administered to trauma patients. Here's the idea, right? You've got these trauma patients, and we've been told, don't give them too much fluid. You know, We used to just routinely give two liters, and now they're like, no, do that. You're silly. We want to lead more with blood products. But it's hard for us to stop doing that because you've been telling us for 20 years, 30 years, to give them two liters of fluid. So this study was supposed to show that if you give the emergency Department 500 ml bags of saline instead of liter bags of saline, you'll significantly reduce the amount of crystalloid you get before you get to the good stuff, the blood. And that's what they said their results showed and that the patients did even better. But because of methodological problems, we don't know if that's true. And they brought up something that I think is very, very insightful. If you wholesale do this to your department, what does it do to the other patients? Maybe this is a good idea in your trauma patients, but is it a good idea in your septic patients? In your other patients? So that would have been a really interesting discussion point as well. But the summary is, we don't really know if this changed the behavior, although I believe in general it probably does. If you don't want me to give lots of saline, make it harder For me to give lots of saline is probably true. This study, not necessarily showing that.
17: Abstract 12.
5: Abstract 12. Here's a question. If the EKG machine says, this EKG is normal, 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 can you believe it? Well, the answer appears to be from this one study. Yes. Emergent cardiac outcomes in patients with normal electrocardiograms in the emergency department. It was from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And basically, to summarise they found that about 20% of the EKGs that you do in the emergency department read as normal, normal, normal sinus rhythm and no badness. And when they looked at these people, they asked, you know, they looked at the cardiology reads, they were discrepant not that often, but most importantly, almost none of those people who came in with a normal, normal EKG ended up having an emergent cath or having an MI or anything bad on this visit or a subsequent visit. So it does suggest that Whatever software they're using at this place works pretty well. But here's the kicker. Only about 20% of the EKGs are considered normal by the machine. But it can make it feel a bit better that if the machine says, look, I can't see anything wrong with this, you're probably pretty safe. Abstract 13. Abstract 13. Oral and Dancitron administration in children seeking emergency department care for acute gastroenteritis, a patient-level propensity-matched analysis. The from... Here's the summary. Ondansetron really did appear to help these kids. It appeared to reduce the amount of IV fluids and stuff they needed. And it's not a perfect study and there'll be more coming, but it does look like Ondansetron worked in this group of kids, particularly the ones that were more dehydrated. So we like Ondansetron for kids that have got uh, the poopy pants.
2: Abstract 14.
5: And finally, let's just, we can't do everything. We can't do everything. So we're going to do Abstract 14. Assessing the necessity of the joint above and below radiography approach for lower extremity long bone fractures in children. So, as you all know, it is common, it is routine practice to do an x-ray where you think the fracture is, but then do the bone above and the bone below, because that's what orthopedics told us to do. Well, in this study in pediatric emergency care, in kids with low-risk fractures, the chance of finding a fracture using that, you know, a joint above and joint below thing was 2%. And it's actually probably less than that. And the conclusion of the authors was, you shouldn't do this as a routine in low-risk patients. In higher-risk patients, okay, that have been in big-time trauma, have at it, that's fine. But in these low-risk patients, just go where it hurts. You don't need to do above and below. Unless it hurts above and below where it hurts. You Know what I mean? Oh, this is the ultra-ultra summary. There are so many more papers that they did. If you listen to this every month, EMA, I'm talking about EMA. If you listen to the full show every month, if you listen to it multiple times, you're going to become what? 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 Yes, what, that's what, right. What, what, yes, that's right. People yes, will be right. screaming at you. This guy's a f-ing legend.
17: That guy's a legend. legend, legend.
5: She is a literature legend. 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 They, they are literature legend. legends. legends. We all could be. If if we all could be. If we listen to the whole show, to the, whole show, show
17: the same. Enough.
10: Common Suturing Errors, Part Two.
4: Earlier in the episode, I talked to Brian Lynn about the common suturing errors. Now we're going to go through the rest. Number six through 11. That's right, 11. These go to 11. Because you get a bonus one. You're welcome.
10: Error six, moving the suture instead of the instrument. The other thing I like to teach is that you really want to move the instrument, not the
15: suture, when you're placing your tie. New learners will sometimes try to loop the suture around the needle driver and hold the instrument stationary, rather than holding the suture stationary and moving the needle driver to create the loop. Firstly, this creates a poor economy of movement, and it's going to slow the step of tying the suture. It also means that the end of the suture that's attached to the needle is going to inadvertently be put into motion, which actually presents a risk to the operator and the patient. Further, since the dominant hand generally holds the instrument, the needle driver, it's much more dexterous to move this hand. So I instruct learners to hover the needle driver immediately over the center of the wound, and then, in a clockwise fashion, loop the instrument around the swaged end of the suture, finally grasping the tail end of the suture in the jaws of the needle driver, before pulling the hands across the wound to allow the knot to lay flat. And then for the following throw, you instruct the student or learner again to hover the needle driver over the center of the wound, but point out this time, of course, they're going to go counterclockwise to accomplish the same task. In building muscle memory for this step, an instrument tying is essential for confident and efficient suturing. This microscale is a little harder to visualize with just words, so I actually created a 20-second video on TikTok that demonstrates it. This is my first attempt, or my first foray into TikTok but it turns out this is a really great medium for teaching this type of micro skill.
4: And that video is linked here as well, so you can check that out.
10: Error 7. Forgetting to set the knot.
15: Yeah, don't forget that new learners are instructed on the pattern loop twice around for the first throw and then once around for subsequent throws. And by the time they've reached an EM sub-internship, they generally have learned and practiced this through general surgery rotations, but they might be missing the why. And here's a really good opportunity to fill in gaps in knowledge to reinforce that skill the why. That first double loop throw sets the knot and it creates a flat surgeon's knot which prevents slippage of that first throw when tension is applied to the wound edges. And it's unnecessary to do on subsequent throws. A really good way to demonstrate this actually in a learning environment is to not do it and show how easily the knot comes loose
10: because it hasn't been set to lie flat. Error 8. Tying knots too close to the wound. I've noticed new learners
15: will often work within this very tiny little perimeter of the wound. And while this itself is not technically wrong, it's unnecessary and often results in a tendency to pull upwards on the knot, which effectively loosens it. So when I first learned to suture, I worked closely with a plastic surgeon who demonstrated to me that you can create that same loop really along any length of the suture. And in some ways, the farther away you go, the easier it is for you to work ergonomically, the easier it is to move your wrists and to achieve that tie. And so what I often do when I'm teaching is to basically demonstrate that you can create that same loop at different lengths along the suture, as opposed to tying in really close. And it makes a big difference for your own comfort, for your ability to tie quickly, and for your ability to get that wound closed in a way that doesn't artificially pull or accidentally pull up on the knot and create a knot that's too loose.
4: See, I think this is one of those situations where a picture's worth a thousand words, but a video is worth like a million. Do you have a video to help us out?
15: I actually have another TikTok video that features the uh, this micro skill as well that I'm happy to share.
10: Error nine, leaving the tail end too long.
15: Okay, another common error that I see is when you're in the act of tying, leaving the tail end too long uh, and grasping the tail end midway through the suture as a consequence of that. So a new learner will often only pull a suture about halfway through a wound, such that there's equal lengths of suture on either side of the wound as they begin to tie. And intuitively this makes sense, right? It's like equal length of your shoelaces or a ribbon on a present. But the net effects of doing this are firstly, you're going to end up wasting a lot of suture after you cut it. And the second is there's a strong likelihood when you've got a long tail end of the suture on the other side of the wound. That when you grab that tail end you're not going to grab it at the end but rather you'll grab it at the midpoint such that when you pull it through you're actually going to create a loop and that loop needs to be coaxed out and that's just another wasted moment another wasted step in the process this is also in a tiktok video if you'd like to take a look
4: and you know i do you know that i do
15: (laughs) error 10 tying
10: too many knots
15: you want to watch out when new learners are tying they get kind of overzealous sometimes and they'll just kind of tie and tie and tie. And generally the number of suture ties that you need corresponds with the suture size. So for example, five ties for a five-o suture, six ties for a six-o suture. A new learner will sometimes get a little excited and continue to tie beyond this. And that's just a waste of suture material and time.
4: So an O suture doesn't need to be tied by that rule.
15: <laughs> you know, fun fact, do you know the history of why we name sutures like 3.0, 40, 50, 60. No. So, you know, way back when in like the 1950s, and I'm probably getting the decade wrong, it used to be that the smallest diameter of suture we could create was basically just a one. So that was the first suture. But then technology got a lot better and we were able to create something smaller than that. And so logically you had to name it zero. And then technology got better and better and better. And now we can create like, Double zero and triple zero, all the way down to nine times zero. And so the n- nomenclature just kind of kept following that. They never revised it. And so when you're talking about like a four O suture, it's basically just four zeros or four times smaller than that zero size suture. Oh. So it's a little silly. You know, if we could yeah. go back and like sort of revise things, I think sutures should just be named like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, and it would be easier for
10: everybody.
4: Yes, I vote that we do this. (laughs) 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 You will lead the movement. (laughs) Error
10: 11, cutting the tails the wrong length.
4: I think we can all remember being medical students in the OR where no matter how we cut the sutures, they seem to either be too long or too short. So what kind of guidance do you have for us on how long we should cut the suture tails?
15: You're absolutely right, Jess, that many students arrive traumatized from surgery rotations about how to do this right. I usually just try to assuage these fears and let them know that the point is to leave a suture length that's easy to find and grasp for removal later, but not so long that it could get tangled or accidentally tied up into the adjacent suture while it's being placed. And that length ends up being about three to five millimeters, maybe slightly longer over facial hair bearing areas where it might be harder to identify a few days down the line.
4: It's okay if you snip a beard hair, but it's not okay if you rip one out.
15: (laughs) Yeah, patients don't like that so much
10: summary
4: okay let's recap not the needle the information never recap the needle anyway let's review
10: error six
4: moving the suture instead of the instrument what does that mean and why should you not do it okay so when you are tying a knot remember you're going to manipulate the needle driver around the suture thread small motion rather than big motion of wrapping the suture thread around the needle driver do you remember that commercial from the 90s for Ribbon Dancer? Anyone, 90s kids? Yeah, don't do that. Ribbon up and down. You're not and a ribbon dancer.
10: Error seven.
4: Forgetting to set the knot. Remember that the first knot is a double throw. That's your surgeon's knot. It sets the knot so it prevents it from slipping before additional knots are added.
10: Error eight.
4: Tying knots too close to the wound. Remember that you don't have to tie millimeters away from the wound. This often leads to too much tension on the wound, and it's more ergonomic to give yourself a little bit more space.
10: Error nine.
4: Leaving the tail end too long when tying the knot. If you do that, you're likely to create a loop that needs to be removed, and then that also just wastes suture.
10: Error 10.
4: Tying too many knots. Good rule of thumb here is that the number of knots is equivalent to the suture size. For example, four knots for a 4-0, five knots for a 5-0,
10: Error 11.
4: Cutting the tails too short. A good length is three to five millimeters. I think you can generally eyeball it, and as long as you're gonna be able to see it to take those sutures out in a few days, that's probably a good length. Well, thanks again, Brian. These skills and micro skills are fundamental, and sometimes it's those fundamental tiny things that get glazed over in training. So I really do appreciate you bringing this all together.
8: All right, Swami, it is time for the mailbag. So let's get over to the home office in Bone Gap, Illinois. Time
6: to make a little noise for a small town called Bone Gap. If you look Look at at Illinois, Illinois, look in in the the south, south. it's on the map.
7: Bone Gap, Illinois. You know, Jan, I feel like this is where the ortho MRAP has their home office, and we're just visiting this month. Absolutely. Letter one. All right, well, we have a great question from a listener. This is about a piece that I got to do with Scott Weingart back in January, 2022. We were talking about cardiac arrest and stopping points. One of the things that I had mentioned was potassium levels. And Scott had said, maybe we're extrapolating that data from the hypothermic cardiac arrest patient. But our listener did point out an article that we need to revisit. So I got a chance to sit down with Scott and look at this question. I just wanted to point out that a retrospective review of about 2,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients showed that no patient who survived neurologically intact had a potassium level over eight and a half when checked intra-arrest. So there is some literature linking potassium level and prognostication in cardiac arrest. I'd love to hear Scott's thoughts on that particular paper. We'll drop a link to the paper in the show notes. Scott, I know you looked at this one. What are your thoughts on that?
11: Yeah. Well, first of all, what amazing listeners we have to actually do lit searches and get back to us. I still am going to maintain where I was when we had the original segment, which is, We're asking two very different questions, which is prognostically, does this have a a negative effect on the patient's neuroviability? Sure. I mean, this is a a really dire situation, but that's not the question we really need to ask ourselves. The question we need to ask ourselves is if a patient comes in in cardiac arrest and you do point-of-care labs and they have a potassium of 9, should you stop resuscitation? And I think, no, just the opposite. I think I would resuscitate this patient even harder. Now, why do I say that? Well, first of all, in that the study sent they didn't delineate how many of these patients were actually in uh, renal failure or had you know, acute or chronic kidney disease such that their potassium could be a reversible hyper-K as opposed to just being dead for a really long time. This scenario, oftentimes, if you have a point of care that shows nine, the response to it is not necessarily what it needs to be. Everyone's going to give calcium, but when you get a potassium that high and you actually want to reverse it it actually requires, in many cases, an insane amount of calcium. And to the point of like, you know, 9, 10 amps of calcium chloride, before in the ones we have saved, we actually had a reversal of this rhythm. So if they weren't doing that, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that any patient with a potassium that high is not going to come back because they're not going to be able to offer the care that those patients actually need. So what would it take for me to say there is a K-level in these patients that actually really portended a absolutely dismal outcome such that I wouldn't continue resuscitation, what I'd need to see is a patient with known hyperkalemia who coded, and that no matter what we did, they all died. Now, that's, that's not this trial, and that's not a trial I think will ever be done. So if you're question is, they roll through the door. You're all s- excited to get them resuscitated because they're in a viable age with a viable pre-existing state. You get that point of care lab and it's a potassium of nine. Should you stop? And I think absolutely not. I think you aggressively treat the hyper-K. You do your normal code stuff. And then if you get to that point where you'd normally stop,
7: then by all means. But yeah. Does that answer the question, Swami? I think it does. I think it does because I think that those patients with hyperkalemic cardiac arrest can be, and I'm putting this in quotation marks, Scott, the easy win. Because if you give them enough calcium, these patients come back. I think we all have anecdotes of those patients where they came from the dialysis center or they arrested in the department. You see the fistula, you slam them with calcium and they come back. We all have those stories. We all have heard those stories. I think that is a real phenomena. And I think it is the easy win in a cardiac arrest. So I agree. I think if you got that level, you give the calcium and you don't stop. I think most of the time what we're doing is we see that cardiac arrest, we see the fistula and we just start slamming in calcium because we think that that is the most common or or the most likely reversible cause that we can actually work on.
11: Yeah. And I will say, and I I should have mentioned earlier, I have had Ks greater than 8.5 in cardiac arrest survive and walk out of the hospital. Now, albeit those were ones who actually were in the department alive. I don't know if I've had the exact scenario in the paper of a patient dead for 40 minutes, comes in and you get point of care labs, Um, They were probably dead a long time, but we absolutely have had cardiac arrest survivors with Ks greater than 8.5, some of them who respond to the calcium, and one of the cases who actually got put on ECMO because this was an absolutely reversible cause of cardiac arrest that is easily fixable.
7: And what I've also seen, Scott, and, and probably even more commonly than me doing it, is our paramedics picking these patients up from dialysis and just slamming them with calcium en route to the emergency department. They're like, oh, we got them back, doc. I've seen that and heard that many, many times.
11: Yeah, you know, it's it's curious what to do now because we just had a trial published saying that calcium empirically during cardiac arrest is actually not helpful. And I think many people who had it as part of their empiric algorithm may shy away from that. I would say it probably should still be there if you picked a patient up from a dialysis center or they have a known history of renal failure.
7: Yeah, we reviewed the COCA trial and we also had it discussed on EMA. And when you look at that study, The exclusion criteria was the clinician thought this patient could have hyperkalemia. So takes out all of those patients with a dialysis fistula, with a dialysis catheter immediately. Exactly right. Letter two. We've also got a late entry into the mailbag from Evie Marcolini clarifying some comments that she had regarding central and peripheral vertigo.
17: I'd like to make a clarification on something that can be very confusing for us. And I think that if we really focus on a clear system, how to assess dizziness, it becomes very systematic and much less confusing. There is more overlap in symptoms between central and peripheral than we used to think, and it's really important to have a solid framework to evaluate our patient. BPPV is peripheral, but when thinking about peripheral versus central, we first have to determine which of the three syndrome buckets we're in. A really straightforward and easy-to-use system utilizes timing and triggers. Step one, Any patient who has a complaint of a vestibular syndrome, like dizzy, lightheaded, weak, unsteady, ataxic, nauseous, or even vertigo, gets lumped into a category called vestibular syndrome. Forget about trying to ask about room spinning versus lightheaded. It doesn't discriminate, and it doesn't help you figure out the next steps. And the patients can't answer accurately half the time anyway. Step two of these vestibular syndrome patients put them into one of three categories. There really are more than three, but for our purposes, these three are adequate. The first is Triggered Episodic Vestibular Syndrome, or TEVS. This is episodic intermittent symptoms brought on by a specific trigger with resolution in between. The second is Spontaneous Episodic Vestibular Syndrome, or SEVS. These are intermittent, spontaneous symptoms that last minutes to hours, but completely resolve. And the final is acute vestibular syndrome, or AVS. These are persistent symptoms that may be worsened by movement, but do not resolve. So step three, if your patient has TEVS, consider BPPV. Do a Dix-Hall pipe. If that doesn't show you the answer, consider other causes like arrhythmia, volume status, GI bleed. If your patient has SEVS, consider the story and the history. Does it fit with panic attack, with vestibular migraine, Meniere's? Respond appropriately, but don't forget to consider TIA and risk mitigate. Does this patient need an echo, aspirin, a statin, neurology follow-up, or should you consider an overnight stay to facilitate these? And the third is AVS. If your patient has acute vestibular syndrome, This is when you're trying to differentiate between peripheral, which would be probably vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis, and central, which is the posterior circulation stroke. This is when you can use the HINTS exam to help differentiate. And, Jan, that's
7: our mailbag for the month. We love getting all these questions. And and I got to say, I feel like us asking for questions is actually working because we've got a little uptick. We've had more questions coming in. And just because we haven't answered your question yet, don't worry. We will answer your question. So don't forget to keep those letters coming. Time to make a little noise for a small town called Bone
6: Gap. If you look at at Illinois, look in the the south, south, it's on the map. Bet you didn't know. That Cy Warmoth was born there. Cy Warmer, and you might now say, Who's that? Why should I care? Who's that guy? There's at least one famous guy who was born in Bone Gap. A southpaw pitcher by the name of Cy. Ah. Oh right, he pitched for the Washington Senators from 1922 to 1923. That guy was born in Bone Gap, Illinois.
11: Awesome.
7: Mega, mega, mega monster. like that? (laughs) All right, Jan, it's time for the mega summary. Time for us to sum up all of the MRAP goodness in one little 15-minute segment. Mega goodness. That's the goal. Let's start with the rural medicine piece. Rural medicine talks.
8: Yeah, so Vanessa this month talked about a case of terminal hemorrhage. And this was a case where a home care nurse called in about a 77-year-old. This patient had lung cancer. She still wanted aggressive treatment at this point. It wasn't a hospice patient. She was also anticoagulated for AFib. She was also getting radiation therapy, and her last treatment was about two weeks ago. Her oxygen saturation was 94%. Her heart rate was 92. Her blood pressure was a little on the lower side, 108 over 76. And as the patient was being assessed, she had this big millennic stool, became very pale and sweaty. And a bunch of blood appears in her mouth, and she starts coughing up tons and tons of blood. And so Vanessa walks us through this case in terms of thinking about the differential diagnosis and what are the bad things that could be happening. But also in the context of this patient who has late-stage cancer, obviously the prognosis is very grave. And so part of this is communicating the bad news about what's happening and that this may be the terminal event and talking through with family and patient about what to do. In this particular case, the family and the patient decided to go with aggressive sedation and comfort care measures. So Vanessa walks us through what are the things to do in terminal hemorrhage to reduce the suffering of the patient and also the angst and suffering of the family who are present for this event. And there are some really nice palliative care pearls in here. For example, trying to use dark sheets and dark towels, whether they be green or black, whatever the darkest thing that you have around, are really nice because they reduce the appearance of the red blood, which is much less distressing, to family and patient as well. And then the medical management here, of course, includes morphine as one of the cornerstones, but also midazolam was used here and some scopolamine as an anticholinergic to reduce secretions. And the patient ended up dying very peacefully without a lot of suffering And it's a really good reminder of how to do good palliative care when it's indicated. And in this particular case, what to do in terminal hemorrhage.
7: That's really tough because I've had a number of patients who had a poor prognosis, who decided that what they wanted was comfort care in the emergency department. The family was there. I don't think I've had one that had a terminal bleeding event. And that really does introduce a wrinkle to it. And a, a small thing like dark sheets, dark towels could really make a huge difference.
8: Yes. For patients, for example, who are dying at home of Tumors that might have one of these terminal hemorrhage events, doing some patient education and being prepared for something like this to happen with the dark sheets, etc., is a pretty common thing that's done. So I think you're right.
7: The devil's advocate. Our next segment was The Devil's Advocate with Scott Weingart, and we kind of went through a number of different topics here. The topics that we picked out were segments from November 2021 MREP, starting with lactate and synovial fluid. And Scott gives us some tips on if you want to get that lab, how to do it. And one of his big points is, it doesn't matter what blood gas analyzer you have, you can run a lactate. He's talked to the people who produce these machines and said, it's a lactate, it's a fluid, it's not a problem, but it's probably something you want to sit down with your lab or whoever's going to run those and say, hey, this is something that I've spoken with the manufacturer about. We can do it. It's not going to jeopardize our equipment. Just make sure that you have a plan there. We talked a little bit about the ketamine-only intubations and why that near database that we talked about recently might have had some issues in what they reported. Remembering that if the best approach for the patient is RSI, then RSI is what you should do and not say, well, the best approach is RSI, but I'm going to go with a ketamine only. Probably not the place to be doing that. And if you're going to think about using a ketamine only approach, you got to make sure that it's in your skill set, which means you're going to have to do some training. And then we talked a little bit about fluid responsiveness and why we've had this massive shift from where Manny Rivers was 20 years ago. To where we are today, the shift from we're gonna give less fluids, we're gonna start using vasoactive substances earlier. And we've discussed fluids and sepsis many times in the past, but Scott kind of brings some of these thoughts together in this nice little segment.
8: I like these devil's advocate segments that you and Scott do because, you know, as you're listening to pieces that are critical care related that Scott's not involved with, you're always thinking, kind of, I wonder what Scott would say about this. And then you get to hear him sort of pour out all of his thoughts about previous segments that you know that he has opinions on these things. So it's just kind of him like getting it out there, right? He's got to like let it all out.
7: Absolutely. And it gives a lot of the flavor of medicine, that there are so many different ways to tackle something. And I think Scott would be the first to say, just because this is the way I do it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Doesn't mean that we're not going to change our recommendations in a couple of years as more data emerges. But this is another way to think about it. Nort!
8: Our next segment was Stuart Squadron and Sean Nort talking about online suicide kits. And, you know, obviously it's always been that people share information about suicide and with the availability of, you know, the web now, it's not surprising that it's become something that's really, really out there. And recently there's been some newer blogs and some newer techniques that are referred to as suicide kits. And unfortunately, many of these methods are pretty successful and many of the patients will just be found dead on scene. But on those who are found early in the process and are actually brought to you, semi-alive, hopefully you knowing a little bit about it can lead to some better outcomes. So some of the highlights of this piece included a discussion of sodium nitrite. This is one that's out there and common, and people ingest massive amounts of sodium nitrite in the grams, which will cause a profound methemoglobinemia. And patients can be comatose. They can be in a lot of distress. They can even seize, be quite acidemic. And so the treatment here is aggressive CPR and obviously methylene blue. And you may even need to give repeat doses. One of the other agents that is used out there is carbon monoxide, which we're pretty familiar with. And they walk through, again, the treatment of carbon monoxide. And then hydrogen sulfide is another one that's out there. And online sites reveal that there's basically the combination of an acid, like a toilet bowl cleaner, and you combine that with some kind of sulfur-containing chemical, like a pesticide, some other types of sulfur-containing solutions, and you can create hydrogen sulfide. And hydrogen sulfide is a knockdown gas. And, you know, we learn about it in terms of, you know, board review about it affecting multiple patients like sewer workers and that the rescuers can be overwhelmed. And so this can certainly happen. And often, again, these patients may be found dead and there may be a delay to finding them. But often when they come in, they're really critically ill. In terms of treatment of these patients, people could actually start to get better once you remove them from the gas itself. They should also get aggressive CPR, non-rubyther, 100% oxygen. And then you can go for some sodium nitrite, which you could get out of your cyanide antidote kit. That's one option to generate methemoglobin. Hyperbaric oxygen is one option here as well. But probably hydroxocobalamin might be worth trying as well. That might It's very well tolerated, and there may be some benefit in these hydrogen sulfide poisonings. And then finally, they talk about carbon dioxide and how people also can create carbon dioxide as a gas and you know asphyxiate themselves that way. And obviously, if we found a patient with that, we would give them high flow O2 by non-rebreather. I mean, most of these patients are going to an ICU. Even if they were minimally symptomatic, they would need to be monitored for at least 24 hours. And obviously, psych consultation is indicated. Again, it's
7: an interesting area because I don't think, obviously, we got much education on this when we were in residency. There's not a ton to read on it. And so it's good to have an update of what's out there, what to expect, and then what to do. And of course, and I know Sean says this, call your local poison center. They're gonna be really up to date on what is out there, what's going on, and give you good recommendations and really help to walk you through the management on these patients. Our next segment was talking about superior vena cava syndrome with Tarlin Hidaity. This is one of these presentations, Jan, that I don't think I've seen it very often. I've maybe had a, a small handful of cases, or perhaps I've missed these cases because they can present with these very vague symptoms. And That's a lot of what we talk about is how to recognize these. SVC syndrome itself is this obstruction of the superior vena cava, leading to decreased drainage of blood. And when you hear that, you think, well, these patients should have pretty significant symptoms. And yet what we see is that, yes, they can have dyspnea and shortness of breath and facial swelling, but they can also have things like nasal congestion and maybe a little bit of tongue swelling. And these are the things that are going to be more difficult or make it more difficult for us to pick up this diagnosis. But of course, the more we know about the different presentations, the more likely we'll be clued in that we'll actually find it. Physical exam-wise, there's not a ton that can really help us, but Tarlin does talk about distended neck and chest veins. She talks about Pemberton signs, which... um. Jan, I'll be honest, when she said Pemberton signs, I had no clue. I'm pretty sure Pemberton is the name of some kind of a liqueur. I definitely did not think it was a maneuver that we can do to find SVC syndrome. And I'm not sure how common it is that patients will actually have this, but you basically have the patient raise their arms over their head. And if they have SVC syndrome, they'll become more short of breath or they might become plethoric. We then go into the different imaging modalities, chest x-ray, pretty nonspecific, although there often will be some abnormalities. And of course, the money here is going to be a CT of the chest with IV contrast. Although Tarlin does give a nod to ultrasound, there is a role. It might be helpful, but most of us are going to make this diagnosis based on CT chest. And then as far as management, we're going to get our consultants involved. The patients can undergo endovascular stenting. They can undergo larger surgical procedures depending on what's causing that compression, what's causing that SVC syndrome. And often these patients will need to be anticoagulated, but we're going to have to get a host of consultants involved in order to figure out what is the best approach for that patient.
8: SVC syndrome can be pretty tricky because it usually develops over time. It takes a while. And so patients, like you said, will say that they look like they're puffy or they feel like they're puffy and have a lot of nonspecific things. And one of the little pearls that I learned about how to tease this out is if people are telling you that they feel like their face is puffier and you're looking at them thinking, I don't see any difference. I mean, you look fine to me is ask them to show you their driver's license and so that you can see a picture of them from some period in the in the past and then look at them now and that might help you judge whether or not they really do look puffier. That's one of the one of the little clinical pearls.
7: A lot easier now with smartphones since everyone's got about 100 selfies of themselves over the last couple of months. Definitely helpful. I remember asking the same thing, oh, let me see your driver's license. And of course in New York, I don't have a driver's <laughs> license. So that was always a tricky one, but now it's That's a lot
8: true. easier. That's true, selfies, let's do it, yeah.
7: Don't
6: fuss with me.
8: All right, next up was Dave Glazer giving one of his famous rants, this time about hyponatremia. And this is one of those internal medicine y topics that he walks us through, which I find really, really helpful. So he gives us, starts off with a case of a 64 year old patient who's a big beer drinker who comes in with some mild confusion and is found to have a sodium of 108, so pretty hyponatremic. And really what he walks us through is how most of the hyponatremia that we come across is actually acquired over time, meaning that it develops slowly. And it's not the real emergent hyponatremia that we spend a lot of time talking about where patients come in acutely hyponatremic, meaning that it developed very rapidly, and they are at risk for death because they're seizing or they have some kind of rapid osmolar change that has caused them to have a neurologic consequence of that. This would include endurance athletes who drank too much free water during the race, people who have primary polydipsia, psychogenic polydipsia, ecstasy intoxication, for example, And, you know, these aren't that common that you see a really acute drop of sodium, but we do see a lot of hyponatremia. And the thing is that a lot of it is acquired over time. And so the real emergency is that we cause a problem by trying to correct that sodium too rapidly. We know that we can cause cerebral demyelination syndrome, which used to be called central pontine myelanisis, which is a locked-in syndrome, which is obviously terrible. And we don't want to do that. And so we have to remember that we want to match the tempo of our treatment to the tempo of their disease. If they acquired their hyponatremia over time, it also needs to be corrected over time, and there is no rush to treat it unless they are having life-threatening consequences, and it's one of these acute cases. Dave does a great job talking us through how urine is concentrated and why certain patients can't concentrate their urine, and all of those kind of, again, I think of them as internal medicine pearls about how hyponatremia is acquired. In the end, he talks about what we can do for these patients who have low sodium that's been acquired over time, and it's really about sort of matching their urine production to what you're putting in. So he advises, in patients like this, make sure you're tracking urine output. It might be via a Foley, it might not. And then you want to try to match their output, and it can be really tough to keep up. And so he advises some other things like giving DDAVP to try to sort of slow down urine production, and this will help concentrate urine. It's a really fascinating segment if you haven't reviewed hyponatremia in a while, this is going to be a good one.
7: I feel like hyponatremia is the concept that makes emergency physicians cry the most. <laughs> yes. And whenever I admit a patient with hyponatremia and the internist starts telling me about hyponatremia, I my brain shuts down. But actually, I think Dave's approach is really good. It's not overly long. It's kind of what you need to know in the moment to take care of that patient, but a lot of what we do is probably not necessary and we really should be saying, "Okay, how long has this developed over? And that's going to guide your management. I think that is the biggest tip to take home. Brian
10: Lynn. That's Our
7: next segment, we actually split into two. This is the common suturing errors from Brian Lynn and Jess Mason. So much good stuff in here, Jan. Because again, I think suturing is something that we do so often and we can, we can put it back together. The question is, let's do it the best way that we possibly can or how do we do it the best way we possibly can? And that's where Brian's tips comes in. And there's lots of videos on his website, lacerationrepair.com, demonstrating each of these and why they're important. Everything from choosing the wrong suture for the task and going over which suture materials we should use under which conditions, making sure you don't handle the needle with your fingers, but instead using your instruments so you don't get a needle stick, how to grasp the suture properly, how to enter with the needle into the skin, all of these little micro tasks that really do make a difference in the eventual outcome of that laceration repair. And that's really what we want. Yes, we want to close it. We want to move on, but we also want to close it the best way we can and give the patient the best outcome they can get.
8: It's so practical. And, you know, as you listen to this, you're thinking of yourself and how you suture. And I really think for everyone, there's something in here that you can learn from it for sure.
6: Rick's Rants!
8: Next up was Rick's Rants. This month, he's talking with Dr. Tom Mayer about burnout and resiliency. Dr. Mayer is an ER doc. He's been around a long time, done a lot of speaking, and currently he's the medical director for the NFL, which is kind of a cool job. He published a book last year on burnout called Battling Healthcare Burnout, Learning to Love the Job You Have While Creating the Job You Love. And this is actually a book that's won some awards and sounds very practical. They talk about burnout as a ratio of job stressors divided by adaptive capacity, which is really resiliency. And so you wanna adjust that ratio. You need to decrease your job stressors as well as increasing adaptive capacity. Solutions in this area really have to do with organizational culture and making your work more efficient and meaningful. We really have to make an effort to change the systems and processes that drive us crazy. And while it's easy to talk about it and difficult for most of us to do, it's probably a really worthwhile investment of time. Personal resilience also matters. We need to reinvest in ourselves. And he talks about how every healthcare team member is a performance athlete which really kind of has to do with his NFL world. But it's true. We go through the cycle of performance, rest, and recovery. Performance, rest, and recovery. And those parts are all really important. The rest and recovery is super important to sort of helping rebuild our resilience over time. The organizations also have to reinvest in us, the people who work for them. And he talks about how, you know, when you work in a sick department, it can really make the people sick too. So, you know, I love listening to these segments and reminding myself that, you know, there is hope. You know, when you're feeling burned out and down, there is hope. There are things you can do. And I enjoyed the conversation.
1: This goes in your mouth. This one goes in your
7: ear. Our next segment brings back Jess Mason, this time talking with Jason Woods about measuring temperature. Such a basic thing, Jan. We got to get a temperature. It's one of our vital signs. And yet we do it wrong so often. And we know we do it wrong. We know that we rely too much on things like the ear temp or the magic wand that goes over the forehead. And Are we really getting a good assessment of what the patient's temperature is? And this doesn't mean that we need to be doing rectal temps on everybody when they come into triage, but more what it means that when the temperature makes a difference, we need to know that we're actually getting an accurate measure of the temperature. Jason and Jess go through the weaknesses of all of these different ways to measure temperature, whether it be axillary or oral or forehead. But they also hone in on one of the things that we think is really inaccurate, but actually is really good, which is when the parent says... I put my hand on their forehead and they felt hot. We should trust those instincts because we actually have data telling us parents really know what they're talking about. They are right when most of the time when they say, I think my kid has a fever. And so that fever at home still counts in our assessment. But when we're measuring the temp, if it's important, if it's going to make a difference, we need to know what is the best way to get that temperature measurement done. And just as a little bit of an aside from what they talked about, they do mention infrared devices for measuring temperature. Remember, we have discussed in the past how this infrared technology wasn't well tested on people with darker skin, doesn't work as well. And Jan, I never knew this until we had that segment way back when talking about oxygen saturations and the infrared tech. I never knew why it was that I would go someplace and would use these infrared scanners and they wouldn't pick it up. They wouldn't pick up my temperature or they wouldn't sense my hand. And now it makes a lot more sense. But just remember that limitation as well. When you're checking temperature on people with darker skin, you're probably not getting an accurate measurement, even less accurate than what you were getting on everybody else.
8: Our final segment is on the world travelers. This is our continuing segment on looking at healthcare systems in various countries. And this time we are traveling to Ethiopia. And Cedric Dark has a conversation with Sion Farou. Dr. Farou is a faculty member at Columbia University, but she was born in Ethiopia and she has a career that's really focused on global health. So she really understands these issues from many perspectives. If you haven't been to Ethiopia or don't remember a lot about it, it is Africa's oldest independent country. It is second largest in terms of population. Most of their population lives in rural areas, with only 20% living in urban centers. And this is a healthcare system that's very primary care focused with a heavy emphasis on community health centers and community health workers. Their healthcare system is funded by the government through a program called Community-Based Health Insurance, CBHI, but they are also very heavily dependent on NGOs and private donations to subsidize their system. This is one of those healthcare systems where patients have to pay a lot of -of out-of-pocket costs, especially if they need emergency care or rapid access to a specialist procedure. They may have to be going to the pharmacy and buying the drugs themselves, or even going to the blood bank and purchasing the blood for their family member and bringing it back to the hospital. So it's a very different healthcare system than what we've heard about in our past episodes in New Zealand and the Netherlands, for example, but really does give us an, a glimpse into what healthcare systems are like in low income countries. I love this
7: segment because I think we don't get a good perspective on what's going on outside of the U.S. or maybe the U.S. and Canada. Maybe you have a little bit of that experience in European countries, but this is a very different system. And that last piece that you talked about, the out-of-pocket expenses, especially for emergency care. And often what families get told is, here's what your family member needs. If you have money for it, here's where you go to get the stuff, bring it back to us, and then we'll give it to your family member. And that's kind of a crazy thought to us of how a system can function. And clearly there's a need for for a more comprehensive approach, but it does show what healthcare looks like in a lot of other places. And I think it's an important perspective if we haven't been outside. And and Jen, I'll be honest with you, I haven't done work in a lot of these other countries. And so I don't know how these systems work. And I think it is a really good look into what's going on outside of our borders. All right, Jen, that is the program for the month. So much really interesting stuff, again, spanning all of these different areas of emergency care from the really basic stuff like measuring a temperature and closing a wound to things like superior vena cava syndrome and getting into these online suicide kits. This is what we do on MREP. We try to get all of these different things, these different concepts, different things that are going on in the realm of emergency medicine. And then bring it to you every month. And we hope that you have enjoyed the month as much as I know Jan and I have, because I had a really good time listening to all of our experts talk about these fantastic topics.
8: Yeah, and you know, everybody, this is, I love this month because it represents emergency medicine, right? It's just from, you know, point A to point Z and everything in between. But it is really important. And remember, everybody, what you do matters.
5: Next time on Rap.
6: This was a case where it didn't quite fit that classic story, and thankfully I was actually kind of led down to the diagnosis.
8: Well, my initial thought is always wear flip-flops in the hotel room, um, number one. And then number two is I'm feeling sorry for this guy. That sounds awful. Uh, these are really, really painful. That's one thing I'm thinking.
14: But for us in the ED, what we really want to know is of the patients who come in with back pain, how often do they have spinal epidural abscess?
4: The route of medication administration has a big impact on the child, and not just in terms of the effectiveness of the medication, but in regard to their experience.
6: wrappers, it's the June Easter egg. That's right, it's the month of June bugs, the bug, and June bugs, the
2: drink, and
6: moonstones. Moonstones? Moonstone is one of the birthstones for June? Or the less sexy orthoclase. Ugh! Named in 1823 by German mineralogist Johann Friedrich August Breithaupt, who coincidentally was born... Don't say June. In May. Oh. May 16th, actually. Why do you bring this up in June? Well, June is the sixth month, and if you take a sixth and you turn it up Upside down, it's a 9, which is the square root of 81. What does this have to do? And if you subtract 81 from 140, you get 59, which is the exact age of James Joyce when he died. What? Besides being an Irish postmodern writer, he's also one of the few famous writers whose first and last names are the same letter as the first letter in June. The letter J! But he was born in February and died in January. Yes, but he wrote a bunch of unreadable, dense books, and one of them was called... Ulysses, which follows the main character, Leopold Bloom, around Dublin on a single day in the summer. And by coincidence of coincidences, that very day described in the book is exactly 81 years and one month after the German mineralogist guy with four names celebrated his birthday the year he renamed the Moonstone. Wait a minute. June 16th, 1904? Ow! Precisely. Ow! Yeah, and that's why every year in Ireland on oh June 16th, yeah. it's Bloom's Day, when people get drunk and they stumble around Dublin it. following in the footsteps of Leopold Bloom and quoting Ulysses.
5: Host, it's it's four, long, jingle. Jingle. Long
6: and, and that's not all! We all know that the official color of MRAP is orange. Yes? Yes! Well, you might not be aware that the Irish flag has a big orange stripe in it. I am aware. Well, the Dutch flag used to have a big orange stripe as well. So what? Yeah, orange became the color of the Dutch royal family because of a guy named Prince William of Orange. And he became a prince back in 1544 when he was 11. And 24 years later, he led the revolt against the Spanish to form the Dutch Republic. And Orange became the official color of Dutchiness.
12: Excuse me, the Dutch flag has uh, red, white, and blue stripes. There's no orange stripe on the Dutch uh, flag.
6: Right, the orange stripe was replaced by the red one because William's successors started acting like royal buttholes and orange (laughs) became associated with power-hungry monarchs. And even though the flag was changed and they were losing political power, some people still supported them and wore orange armbands and ribbons in support of these royal buttholes.
18: Where is this going? Things
6: got so bad that the Dutch estates who actually were in control banned the wearing of orange of any kind and that law went into effect on June 16th, What does any of this have to do with medicine or MRAP or anything? I'm getting to it. Eventually, the law was repealed and the people of the Netherlands were unified and June 16th has become known as No Orange Clothes Day, where people make a point of wearing orange. So now every year on the day that the Irish are quoting their favorite author and getting hammered, the Dutch are celebrating their favorite broiled buttholes and wearing orange. And they're also probably getting hammered, along with Arnold Vosloo, the South African actor who played Imhotep in The Mummy. Happy birthday, Arnold Vosloo.
12: Excuse me, the the No Orange Clothes Day is not a real holiday in the Netherlands. It's a novelty holiday, you know, like in America for National Fudge Day. They're not all
6: novelty holidays. Some of them are real, like National Career Nurses Day. That's, you know how important nurses are? You try putting in your own central line.
5: And what day is National Career Nurses Day?
17: June 16th.